VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 8th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. Let's get the week off to a flying start. That can only happen if you join us live on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Just a quick comment on no show yesterday. So, apparently, Brian Medor was inundated with questions about where the program was yesterday. I fielded a variety of notes myself. So basically, we are on the national company's stat schedule, and so that's just the basics. We had a show on Regatta Day, and normally we wouldn't have had a show on Regatta Day. So we pick a couple of stats in the fall. One of them was uh, August the 7th that I chose. So that's the fundamental reason why we weren't here yesterday, but we're happy to be here today. All right, let's go down to St. Pat's Ballpark last night. Game 4 of the Provincial Senior Baseball Championships. Good series. So uh, CBS took the opener on Friday night. The Caps responded with a couple of victories on Saturday. They had a washout on Sunday, so they went back at it last night. And the Caps came back to win 7-6 to take the provincial championships three games to one. Uh, the MVP of the series, a fellow named Jacob, uh, Jacob Reed. He's a junior age ball player, so nice ball player there. Stick with some easing into the show with some sports. This is terrific stuff. So for the longest while, Ontario and BC, they simply dominate the world of rugby in the national championships. The Rock Rugby went out to Vancouver to participate in this year's go-around, and they won. It's the second time in three years that the under-19s from the Rock Rock Rugby Club have won the national title. They went out there and pretty much put it to everyone they played. Beat Quebec 42-24, beat Ontario 23-10, pummeled Alberta 77-7, and then in the championship game against BC in Vancouver on their home pitch, won 27-15. So congrats to all involved. That's really a terrific victory. All right, read a great story in the Telegram sports page over the weekend, too, about a football player. Now, football's growing in popularity here in the province. We're well behind the rest of the country with implementing football programs. And there's a young fella, an offensive lineman named Evan Healy. He's been touted as being one of the top 50 football players of his age in the country. What's even more extraordinary about this story is he's been deemed one of the top 50 high school football players. We don't have high school football. Just to go to show you what kind of talent the young man must have to join that elite group without even having that kind of program in addition to club uh, football like he plays here. And they were just at the Atlantic Bowl, which obviously he turned a lot of heads, so pretty great stuff. A couple more quickies. We sent a couple of teams, uh, U15s, U17s, boys and girls, to the National Basketball Championships. Congratulations to all involved. One player really jumped out and was written about and recognized as a great scorer, young Ryder English. Comes by it honestly, Carl English's son. Through four games of the tournament, he was averaging over 40 points, the most prolific free-throw shooter in the tournament as well, as per the last batch of stats I saw, so bravo to Ryder. And i got to give credit to a guy named Chris Parsley for digging out this nugget. I don't know if anybody watched any of the Helinka gretzky hockey tournament featuring the best under-18 hockey players in the world. Canada won in overtime 3-2 to take this year's title. One of the defensemen on the team is a guy named uh, Henry Muse. His great-grandfather, Harry Muse, former mayor of the city of St. John's. I love those little nuggets. Okay, here we go. Into the issues of the day. So yesterday we heard that the province was dropping the 1.6-kilometer family responsibility zone 
so that students can get on the bus as opposed to see their uh, their friends and their schoolmates drive right by them on the bus because they live 1.6 kilometers or closer to the school. All right, so a few things. You know, I know politicians do this for a reason, say, hey, you know, that's our idea. We've been talking about this forever, but that rule has been in place for a long time. A bunch of successive governments could have done away with this, and now the liberals have decided to do exactly that. It's good news. So there's going to be some 4,000 additional students riding the bus this September. It incorporates about 50% of the schools in the province. There's a big long list on the government's website to see if your school is included. Next year in September will include the rest of the schools. The Premier said give, and take, give or take, so I don't know if that means it was a distinct 50-50 split or some schools might not get the service, but I was told that all school-age children, K-12, will get on the bus. All right, it's a safety issue, right? So this year, some 124 schools, 4,000 students, great. The, no additional money apparently required this go-around, but there will be budget money allocated for next September of 2024 to complete the rest of the province. All right, it's absolutely good news. It surely is. Some people will refer to it as the low-hanging fruit or one of the easy decisions to make in education. I tend to agree. You know, there was just an arbitrary number picked, one mile, 1.6 kilometers, and so that was the cutoff. Inside the world of education, oh, as much as this is going to be very helpful and absolutely will make it safer for many children to try to navigate their way to school because not everywhere has the lit crosswalks and sidewalks. I mean, just picture it in your mind's eyes, some of the places in the province where Children are basically walking on the shoulder of the highway to get to school. And it gets even worse when the weather becomes inclement, snowstorm or otherwise, if the school opens with a bit of snow blowing around. Okay. But on top of this, so this one of the steps to use the Green Report to blend the school district into the government. And there was always a mention in the Green Report about this would result in savings. We haven't heard any such savings. In the most recent budget, outside of infrastructure, there's only $12 million additional dollars put into the education system. So here's a couple of the gaps. Look, you know, as much as this is good, and Minister Howell, the new Minister of Education, yesterday said, with an increased number of students in our schools in K-12, it's a good problem to have. Yes, that feels and sounds right, but you have to be absolutely prepared for an increase in student enrollment. We have long had a problem, and last year was very much like years past, where there was an issue with the numbers of teachers, permanent teachers being in place on day one. There was a massive problem with substitute teachers. There's absolutely always going to be a problem with the addition student assistance required for young people, young students, who need that additional level of support. So as much as we can get it right on busing, we've certainly got to figure out a couple of other things. So teachers and subs. Then you add in the concept, and I'm going to keep banging this drum because I think it's a distinctly, it's a ridiculous oversight for us not to consider the concept of learning loss. We've got to get it right in schools. Then there's a couple of loopholes. If you have a child between you and your child, you decide that they're going to take early French immersion. Not every school offers it, so they might be going to a school a little further afield for French immersion, but they're a loophole student. They will not get a school bus. And you know, when I live in a school neighborhood where we do indeed have a French immersion neighborhood school, and yes, students from different parts of the area, different parts of the, uh, the city, come to that school. They're not in the catch area or the catchment area, but that'll be a loophole that they have to deal with. And then, you know, the summer might be a little bit easier for families to try to deal with the issue regarding daycare, and so many people in the province live in a daycare desert. We only have regulated spaces for some 14% of children in the province, which is a staggering number. So what are we doing there? What kind of progress has been made there? I know we've got a 
new pay ban for early childhood educators. I know there's the move towards full-on offerings of $10 a day, but all of these things, which are much more complex, and the thought that we're going to save some money by blending in the district, we just need some more details. Good, bravo, 1.6 goes by the wayside, as it rightfully should have, over the years. I don't care whose idea it is, it's a good one, so let's do it. But some of those other issues in the schools continue on. And then the Premier, of course, obviously was going to be asked about the decision to build a high school in the community where he lives, the Portugal Coast St. Phillips. You know, there's the assertion that, or the allegation that this is simply playing politics. Not really. You know, we have to use the best data available to make decisions here. And if we're talking about whether or not Paradise, which was number one on the priority list to get a high school, it was never a high school in demand as per whether it be Tony Stack or anybody else down in Portugal Cove St. Phillips. If there's 300 students in that community being bused to other high schools compared to 1,500 in Paradise, that's not playing politics. That's just using the data. Let's talk about the math. Let's talk about the priorities. As was well understood by the district, well documented based on student enrollment, more than 20% of the community in Paradise is under the age of 14. So I think there's an argument to be made there. I know it's easy enough to say, well, they're simply paying politics, but we've got to make good decisions with infrastructure money. It's just we have to. No matter what party you prefer, what politician you choose to vote for, that's just what we've got to be talking about, I think. Okay, we're hoping to get Sheldon Pollard from Choices to Youth on. Lots of stuff and a real explosion in numbers of young people looking to Choices for Youth for their services. So they've got a new building that they're going to, not a new building, a building built in 1929, on our Merchant Road that they're going to refurbish and renovate to be all services under one roof. I'll let Mr. Pollard explain a little clearer what this is going to mean for his organization and the programs they offer, but we'll see if he's available here this morning. Okay. And, of course, they deal with a lot of housing issues. So the new immigration minister is a man named Mark Miller. He takes over for former immigration minister Sean Fraser, who is now the federal minister of housing. And there's an absolutely distinct dovetail between those two. Uh, those two departments. Immigration is not the only reason why we have a housing crisis. The housing crisis has been growing for years. And yes, there's a big economic uptick and upside to immigration. The numbers of Canadians in so-called so brackets of working age is decreasing. And we've got to understand it and address it. In 2022, we saw unprecedented population growth here in the country, over a million permanent and temporary residents. Lots of good things come from immigration and lots of targeted skills, whether it be healthcare professionals, skilled tradespeople. We can't use immigration as the boogeyman as to why there's a housing crisis, but is it a complicating and contributing factor to the housing issue in the country? Absolutely. No question. So when asked, the new immigration minister says, there is no inclination to decrease any of the targets set by the current liberal government. And for context, here they go. So the country aims to invite 465,000 permanent residents in 2023, 485,000 in 2024, 500,000 in 2025. The next three-year target goals will be announced sometime later this year. So yes, there's plenty of reasons why attracting immigrants is going to be critically important in this country. And it doesn't make anyone a bad person to ask the questions about pressures on daycare, pressures on the healthcare system, pressures on housing. If you listen to some of the economists, now, of course, they will all have varied opinions on the variety of issues, but even if you look at the National Bank of Canada, their chief economist said, even when you factor in something like the Bank of Canada, and what was easily envisioned was hikes in interest rate, 
which set the most aggressive monetary tightening cycle in a generation, and now what we have is a record imbalance between housing supply and demand. Heard Tim Powers on with Ben Murphy this morning, using some of the numbers that we really have to wrap our mind around. With the current targets, we're going to have to build an additional 3.5 million units in this country to catch up on the housing issue. That's on top of the pace we've already set. Through the first two quarters of 2023, housing starts stood at 62,000. 62,000. So that's a real leap between 62,000 every couple of quarters to 3.5 million units. Again, working age population up by over 238,000 in the second quarter of this year. So lots of good things, but it doesn't mean it comes without pressures. It doesn't come without issues that have to be addressed, and I would suggest have to be addressed up front as opposed to reacting after the fact. And yes, we target all kinds of immigrants, whether it be healthcare professionals, skilled trades, IT professionals, and otherwise. But maybe is this simply a case of, in an effort to differentiate themselves from other parties, notably the conservatives, that they will, you know, dig in their heels here and just be absolutely committed to numbers they've announced, even if they know in their quiet moments at caucus meetings that there's work to be done in preparation for attracting these numbers of immigrants, newcomers, to the country. So, you know, I hear people insinuating that they're, you know, some may be racist or whatever because you're asking questions. No, we all know it when we hear it. If a question is steeped in some nasty uh, moral failing or characteristic, we can hear it. We understand it. But if you ask a basic question about what does it mean in healthcare, what does it mean in housing, and it's incumbent on those responsible for making the decisions to be able to give us a better, of a more clear answer as to if not pump the brakes, why not? You know? Is it all simply about standing your ground or what have you? Because nobody wants to come anywhere or to move anywhere, even me. I don't want to go anywhere where I'm going to find myself in housing crunch. And I think the same can be said for newcomers. They might thank their lucky stars that they're able to make their way to Canada for family reunification or for a job or for whatever reason. But then if it results in a, you know, learning the language, getting settled, making friends, making contacts, finding a job, finding a home, finding a doctor, finding a a daycare space, these are all part and parcel. They're all the moving parts that have to be considered concurrently. Anyway, how do you how are we doing out there, David? Let's get her going this morning. Throat shot. Mentioned uh, Sheldon Pollard at Choices for Youth. Interesting announcement coming from the Atlantic Mayor's Congress. They've appointed their no new executive director, and it is Craig Pollard. In my personal opinion, Craig Pollard was blessed with a significant amount of horsepower in this province. Did tremendous work as an advocate as the CEO for municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador, a position he held for around 20 years. So now with them at the helm of the Atlantic uh, Mayor's Congress, and their next Congress is actually coming up in September from the 21st to the 23rd in Happy Valley Goose Bay, Pollard is terrific. Wonder what that might mean for, I mean, we all know just how few seats are in Atlantic Canada. What is it, 31 federal seats in Atlantic Canada? You know, the synergies, the problem solving, the best practices, what we can glean, not only through the Atlantic Mayor's Congress, but from Mr. Pollard himself, who not only brings a wealth of experience in understanding the issues surrounding uh, municipalities in this province, see what we're doing well in other parts of Atlantic Canada, because the Atlantic Canadian population is growing for a variety of reasons. And actually, the price of housing and other things is a contributing factor as to why that's the reality. But it uh, be great to have Mr. Pollard on again soon. He's replacing a fellow named uh, Matt Kerrigan. Matt Kerrigan was in that position for over 20 years himself, so 
picking up where Mr. Kerrigan left off. Congratulations to Craig. He says it's a dream job, and without question, he will be great at it. Okay, just another little positive one before we get to the break and to your calls. Okay, so over the weekend was the triathlon. Big success, as I'm told, but there's one triathlete who made their way here, Steph Fauquier, doing uh, 10 triathlons this summer for her mom, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's two years ago. She's footing the bill for all the travel, trying to spread awareness, and made her way here to participate in our triathlon. It's good to have Steph here. She was received quite warmly out of... uh, Sunshine Camp for this particular race. On that front, when we talk about getting out in front of things, understanding what's coming, being prepared for it, in raising awareness of Alzheimer's, you've heard the numbers from me, we'll say it again, there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 124,000 Canadians diagnosed with dementia in 2020. Alzheimer's, of course, the most common form of dementia. By 2030, the forecast is that there'll be over 955,000 Canadians living with dementia by that year. So we all know what that means for the needs of supports. And it's not all about institutionalizing them in a long-term care facility. So everything that stems from that, the aging in place and the role that the federal government will play on that front. What is the province looking at in an effort to be prepared? And there's so many other issues we can talk about, but we'll get to them based on your thoughts and wants this morning. All right, we're on Twitter. We're over VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show to kick off the week that requires your participation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one and say good morning to our good friend, Rob Strong, oil and gas consultant in the province for upwards of four decades. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, sir. How about you? Good, thanks. Good good to start the week off talking to you. You're always full of news. Well, it's my pleasure to have you on the show, Rob. Before we get to some activity in our offshore, let's talk about a pending mission in the fall to South America, to Guyana. What's happening? Uh, this is an ongoing uh, activity that Energy NL does on behalf of... Uh, oh, God, hold on. There's Hold on. Can you hold on? Sorry. Sure. At least, at least turn your ringer to calypso music if we're talking about Diana. I t- turned it off and stuck <laughs> it in the drawer. Okay, there we go. Yeah, there's an ongoing mission down to Guyana. You know, Guyana is still a pretty exciting jurisdiction. They, uh, I guess that was one of my topics for this morning, but they're up to 11, they'll admit to 11 billion barrels, which is phenomenal when you consider the first discovery was made in 2015. So there's still lots of opportunities for Newfoundland business people. I would suggest there's probably been at least 100 of us, if not more, that have gone down there over the last six or seven years. But as I say, there are also such sort of other activities related to the oil and gas. For instance, they're bringing a pipeline ashore. They're going to use the associated gas uh, for power generation. So anybody that's in, the, in sort of the power generation business, instrumentation and control business, that safety business, it's a good opportunity to get down there and see if you can get your foot in the door and get 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 some sort of a joint venture going. So I think it's sometime in October, and I guess my guess is, and I haven't talked to Energy NL, is there are probably 20, 25 Newfoundland companies going down there. So, yeah, yeah, it's good to see. When we talk of any industry, and including oil and gas, we'll do things like comparisons to Norway or West Africa, or Guyana, or the oil sands, whatever the case may be, when no two areas are exactly the same. Cost of producing, regulatory issues, human rights attention, environmental attention, and what have you. When we look at other jurisdictions, is it helpful? Are they so different that we're talking about different kindles of fish, and so no comparison really holds water as opposed to where activity is actually taking place? 
raise a good point. The the Hess a company called Hess Energy is a partner in in Guyana with Exxon and the Chinese CNOC CNOOC. And Hess is on record as saying that their total costs are between $25 and $30 a barrel. So how do you compare that with a, a you know, a North Atlantic development or a Northern Norway development? So you're right. It's, it's difficult to compare. But, but people do compare it because, let's face it, that's competition. If you can get oil out of the ground dirt cheap versus getting the oil out of the ground, which is going to cost you, where are you going to get it from? So uh, when we talk about the global situation, we always have to be cognizant of what other jurisdictions are doing what and at what pricing. So I think that's, 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 that's the comparison that people make. Yeah, I mean, downstream emissions will all be very, very similar. It's at the production site where there are differences where you can paint your potential industry in a different light. But then, of course, some of those complexities that, unless you live and work in Guyana or West Africa or anywhere else, you don't really know how they pay attention to the environment or human rights or regulatory issues. For some, it's, you know, the wild, wild west. For others, more mature countries in the industry, they have a different approach based on where they think they can actually see companies raise capital because that's some of the calculations that the oil and gas companies will have to make. Exactly, and thank you for the Internet because God God knows it gives a lot of information. Again, just sticking with Guyana for a minute, you know, by 2027, they will be producing in excess of a million barrels of oil a day. I checked last week to see what we're doing. Now, appreciate that Terra Nova is, is down and there may be maintenance issues, but I only found $205,000, 205,000 barrels a day uh, right now uh, offshore Newfoundland, or at least for the month of June. So, uh, you know, we're, we're still, we're, we, it's a big deal for us, but globally we're pretty small. When I mean, you consider the whole world produces about 100 million barrels a day, and, uh, and, and, and when we're going good offshore Newfoundland, we're up to three or 400,000 barrels a day. So, uh, it's interesting, put it in that context, as I say, considering they they discovered oil in 2015, and here they are going to be 1.2, 1, 1 and a quarter, 1, 1, 1.27 million barrels of oil, and with five, or oh, sorry, six FPSOs. So there you go on Guyana. It's 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 a exciting place to be, and I was very happy to be down there when they when they made the initial discovery in 2015. I I haven't been back since since COVID, but. Uh, I'd like to go back again because it's interesting. See the way the whole country has changed, Patty. It, it, uh, you know, there's no more schools, more hospitals, and more roads, more water and sewer. Uh, there's money available now to help the farmers, to help the fishing industry, to help the mining industry. So the the country has gone from or going from the poorest per capita in poorest cap. Uh, sorry, good morning to you. I'm having a hard time. Uh, the poorest country per capita in North America. North and South America to going to be the richest one in seven years. So what an impact oil has had down there. And we don't know what the future holds. I don't pretend to have a crystal ball. When peak oil is arrived at, what jurisdictions will see new production come to light or come on stream. But let's talk about some of that here. We don't really know exactly what's off our shores regarding how many billions of barrels of oil or trillions of cubic feet of natural gas. But we're pretty cocksure that out in Beta Nord, there's somewhere between 3 and 5 billion. When Badenor, pardon me, Equinor, you know, had they, they had their uh, break even at around 35 bucks, and there's no reason to believe it won't be well ahead of $35 for the, the future, but they suspended operations for three years. Then, last quarter on a call, their, their CFO, the chief financial officer, 
spoke in very different terms. It didn't feel quite like abandoned. Maybe it was measured commentary, but he says this is still near the top of the list, all the while saying only the best projects will proceed. What did you make of what the CFO said? Interesting, because the same CFO back in August 2022 said, and I quote, BP Lots, fantastic asset in Canada's Beta Nord. So they, they appreciate the fact that it's uh, probably, I don't know if it's three to five million barrels, whatever it is, and the operator will just say in excess of 500 million barrels, but the, the industry is speculating it's a billion barrels. Uh, I I think that the BP statement of last week or two weeks ago where they're basically confirm their, the idea of putting it on hold for a while, is based upon the fact that costs have gone crazy. I keep telling people that, you know, the cost of a drilling rig five to three years ago for a drilling rig suitable for drilling out there was probably you know, $350,000 a day. Today, that same rig is $500,000 a day. Steel prices have gone up. Labor prices have gone up. So they and and they want to go back and have a look at the design. Was the, was the initial design that was got priced the right design? Apparently not, because they're going back and relooking at it. Were the were the shipyards in Korea and China uh, available three years ago? Yes, they were. Are they available today? No, they're not. So it's a combination of factors, and I think BP. And BP is pretty pretty firm about their expectations. They're looking for 18 to 20 percent, and that's what they that's what they said last week in their investment call. We will come back when we feel we can get that return, and we think we can get it. We're hoping there might be some more exploratory activity to enhance or increase the reservoir size. But I, I, I'm fairly optimistic on Beta Nord. I, I think it's a good it's a good reservoir. It's it's a big reservoir. It stretches well. It's a series of reservoirs. It's, six or eight reservoirs, but it stretches 67 kilometers from the top to the bottom, so it's a massive subsea development. It's probably going to be one of the most expensive subsea developments we've ever seen in the world. So it, lots of challenges, but again, if, if, you're, if you're saying over a billion barrels of oil of, of, of reasonably high quality, API of about 30, 35, API being the unit of measurement for, for, I guess, the cleanliness of the oil, if there's such a thing. So, yeah, I'm optimistic, and I'm delighted to hear BP uh, haven't walked away at all. They, they want to rework the numbers. They want to get some of the costs down. And I think we'll see it in a couple of years. Because words matter. You know, when we look at BP, they said they weren't suspending, they were abandoning their exploration process, uh, the program. Then Exxon out there in the John Dark Base, which comes with some controversy regarding the fishing industry and what have you, but they're out there having a go around. You mentioned CNOC earlier. Looked like they were coming for real, and then they drilled a well. It was dry in a way. They went for it as quick as they came. Interesting stuff. Last one before I let you go. So I don't know how much more oil will be produced in addition to the current producing fields. But when people talk about, you know, emission concerns and those types of things, the electrification of the offshore has long been a part of the conversation as much as electrification of publicly owned buildings onshore. Does anybody in the industry talk about it? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, several studies, actually. Some, somebody did a study last year about bringing electricity from, from, from land out in the middle of the Jean d'Arc Basin, as well as other people looking at floating, floating wind farms that you could stick in the middle of John in the Jean d'Arc Basin and uh, produce, you know, and, and replace the burning of fuels for 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 the platforms and using uh, using electricity generated by wind. So yeah, everybody's thinking about it. But Patty, before we go, and here is breaking news, although it's via the gossip mill, and I quote: Terranova FPSO is set to leave Bull Arm on Friday, 
August the 11th, 2023. Supply vessels and tugs are currently in Bull Arm or heading in that direction at this time, preparing for the vessel to head back to the offshore. It's My source says it's all over Facebook. I'm not a Facebook person, so I don't know. So apparently the tugs are going to do something with, in Bull Arm on Friday. My suspicion is they're taking it away from the dock because a vessel that size needs some help to get away, away from the dock. And maybe taking out the location. It certainly doesn't mean we're going to have oil next week because there's a fairly extensive hookup and commissioning. Uh, you've got to take that spider boy up and hook, hook basically up the, the, the wellhead to the platform. But uh, I strongly encourage your newsroom to have a look at that. And as I say, it's, it's gossip that I've been provided with, so... Uh, I can't attest to the accuracy of it, but uh, there you go. I know where to turn to confirm that particular story. And, I mean, Suncor, uh, they owe us some answers here. Not because we are one of their so-called partners, but we actually have skin in the game here. $200-plus million cash on the barrelhead, $300 million in uh, deferred royalties, or actually royalty forgiveness. So we're in for half a billion. Maybe that doesn't get us a full seat at the table, but gets a toe under the covers anyway. Well, there's still 80, 90 million barrels left That's in right. the field, but I, 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 I concur. I totally agree with you that Suncor owes the people of Newfoundland, or somebody owes us an explanation when you consider we got a total of $506 million in, in, in invested in that project. And, and, you know, you figure out the work that went on in Spain. It took much longer. We had to send workers over there. I came back to Newfoundland, and we had to bring them stuck stayed in Conception Bay for a month or so, and then went, finally went to Bull Arm, where Newfoundland pipe fitters and welders and, and tradespeople finished the job. Perhaps we should have done the job here in Newfoundland. You know, you can take the take the, take the vessel to to Europe, take it out of the water, do what you got to do with the hull, the thrusters, the turret, the propellers, paint the hull, that sort of thing. But why can't we do the top sides here in Newfoundland? And I, I suggest... And it's just a suggestion, and not everybody listens to my suggestions, Patty, but, you know, the Sea Rose is coming up next year for a similar, a what we call ALE, Asset Life Extension. And, I yes, we cannot, we cannot dry dock the Sea Rose in Newfoundland, in Canada, and there's only one yard in the U.S., I think. But, by God, we can do the top side, so why aren't we? It's a fair question, and yeah, so 80 million barrels-ish left in that particular oil field. We are intimately involved, and Suncor backed it out of their production forecast for this calendar year. You know, I guess indicative of even if it is ready to float out now, it takes a while for that to be back in full, safe operation. Good to have you on, Rob. Always, always my pleasure, Patty. Take care. You too. All Bye-bye. The Bye-bye. It's Rob Strong, oil and gas consultant in the province for quite a long time, some four decades-ish. Right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the disability tax credit. It's certainly a very welcome tax credit for those who qualify, but it comes with some complications as the, as you turn 49 and what that means for retirement funds. Fraser, pick it up after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Fraser. Pick it. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. It's certainly a pleasure to uh, have the opportunity to talk, particularly following Robin and his news regarding the the importance of oil to our province. Uh, I, I would take that as a segue right into the importance of savings for persons with disabilities in our province in 
being more informed about the registered disability savings plan. Well, let's get into that because I think that's an you know an oversight that many people don't even know it exists and possibly do qualify for. Before we get into the retirement complications or implications at the age of forty nine for retirement funds, pardon me, just basically, who generally qualifies for a disability tax credit? Well, again, uh, it, it, it's all, uh, I guess, it would be all arranged through the disability tax credit. Once a person applies for a disability tax credit, they could have a cognitive disability, hearing disability, any kind of disability. And in, in our province, and I can also say in Canada, that represents about 20% of the population. If you look at Stats Canada, and the numbers that in Newfoundland that would be a hundred thousand people. However, about forty percent of those people have a severe or very severe disability which limits their capabilities in regular life or doing what we all expect to do during the day. So that represents about forty thousand people that should be eligible for the disability tax credit. So, so is this conversation driven by doctors or their patients or who should be driving and pushing this because if there's Canadians being left on the outside looking in but do indeed qualify, how does the education campaign work to ensure that whoever's actually technical, technically eligible gets it? Well, I, I think uh, if, first I'd like to say about the Canada, I'll give me back up to the Canada Disability Benefit, okay. which just, just got royal assent in uh, government and right through the, the Senate. And it's one of the most exceptional acts that had ever been passed that will benefit persons with disabilities. i got to say thank you for the good work of all of the associations that advocated to promote that and then government for passing it. Two amendments happened within the Senate. One was the uh, that there's a time limit on government to make sure it happens within a 12-month period. That's step one. The second part was another very, not you never heard much about it, but uh, was that the insurance companies cannot claw back anything that comes from the Canada Disability Benefit. And I certainly hope that provincial governments will not have the ability to do that also uh, because all the money that's going to persons with disability should be going directly to them. And the sad part is that 40% of all of those persons living in poverty have a disability. So let me take you into the disability tax credit and the registered disability savings plan. In our province right now, to, today, there are 8,000, this is all Stats Canada, 8,000 people who, people who have a disability tax credit but have not exercised their right to go and get the registered, registered disability savings plan. If, and I would say to those 8,000 either people or their moms or dads or uncles and cousins, the communication has failed over the years by both all levels of government and even the uh, organizations, in some cases, representing them. Over the past 15 years, they, they continue to do the same type of process in promoting and expecting to see a different result. Uh, that has not happened. 
We have in Newfoundland about a 23, 24% uptake. The national average is just above 30%. If I look at the 8,000 people, and if you go to on their computers, just simply go into rdsp.com and just simply click on that particular uh, site and click on the calculator, we can talk about all the confusing part, parts of this particular program, about bonds and grants and et cetera, but to get it to the basic best format is to look at the calculator. If you look at a calculator, it comes up and you just simply, you are an individual, the current age of the uh, person with the disability, if you put in there, say, age 30, uh, as, as an example, the year that it was open would be this year, uh, qualified for the disability tax credit? The answer is yes. Uh, and, and you continue on down through that particular site. And Patty, if you, if you did it there sitting there yourself and put in some of the particulars, you'll come up with an answer of an individual with no money putting in, not one cent, that when they retire, they will have in that fund almost $100,000. Now, why people are not taking advantage of it, I, I, it's beyond me at times. Fraser, help us understand the implications of turning the age of 49 regarding their disability tax credit, what it means for retirement funds. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. One, what happens, it, it just happened to be the, the way it's set up, that when 49, in the year that you turn 49, all of these, all the benefits will disappear. I'll give you an example, and I think it's the best example that I've exercised myself. I was giving a session out in Bayvert, a gentleman who was turning 49, uh, a friend of his asked, would it be good for him to come? The gentleman was cerebral palsy, and he came to the session, and I just simply took the calculator and said, do you mind in front of the audience telling us exactly, let's fill this in? And he did. He received $10,000 automatically because he's had, obviously, his disability for many years previous. The federal government will, will go back 10 years and pick up $1,000 each year. So there's $10,000 sitting there. The provincial government has a program called the Provincial Incentive Program, which is, while it's only $150, but the $150, once the RDSP is opened, it will generate three times that amount coming from the federal government. So now he's sitting there with $10,600. One time in your life, you can put in $3,500. At the time, the gentleman never had that kind of money to put in, but the community got behind them, put in and raised through the GoFundMe process $3,500. When that went into the, his account, it generated three times that amount coming from the government. So here he's now sitting with one day with nothing, and well, within several days, he was sitting there with $26,000. When he retires, the federal government will be, or the, uh, obviously the banks, because it's, it's a retirement package, mm -hmm. he'll receive roughly $60,000 during his retirement. So this is a worst-case scenario what we're missing out on. If you take the 
the least amount that you'd get, which is the 30,000, this year alone, out of the 8,000 people that have the disability tax credit, 350 will turn 49 this year. If you do the math, that equals $10,500,000 that will simply disappear or the opportunity for it if they don't exercise the option of opening up and being aware of the regular disability savings plan. So that's how important it is. And if you take in Canada, uh, the, the numbers are even, you know, greater because you've got greater numbers. But over the past uh, five years, Canada has missed out on about $1.5 billion. And here in Newfoundland, we've missed out on, I think it worked out to about $10, $10 million. So again, uh, if we just get 10% of those individuals, when you look at the numbers, exercising their option at age 30, that equals eight, 80, I think it's $80 million that could come into the retirement ability and funds for persons with disabilities. And, and you talk about a program to take them out of poverty. Uh, and uh, when you look at the poverty reduction strategies that are there, uh, this program should be a pillar of that particular program. Well, especially when we're talking about 20% of the population may indeed be eligible for, the $10 million is more than that in real terms, isn't it? Because if you are living without those monies, it would have to be backstopped by the province through a variety of uh, social programs. Then what the implication would be for... Uh, worsening of your overall health and what it costs to engage with the healthcare system more than you maybe would have needed had you had this money and the retirement set forward for you by an already existing federal program. I'm glad that you called on this one because, like you said, if we even get 10% of those who are unaware or on the outside looking in, that makes their life different right away. It has an immediate implication. So the contacts and the links are very, they're really quite easy. You know, if you just simply go to your Google bar and say Canada Disability Benefit, you'll come to the benefits, the Disability Benefits landing page, which has all of it, whether it be children's benefits or this benefit or tax credits. It's all right there in front of you. And if you have a hard time finding it, you contact me via my email, which is simply openline.fiosm.com. I will send it to you, including links to the calculator so that you can get a real-life forecast for what you may be due. So this has been a very informative and helpful call for you. Is there anything else you'd like to add? No, again, to keep this, uh, I guess, as easy to do as possible, and I think the link to the calculator does it all. Yep. Because if you, if you go in there also, British Columbia, by the way, uh, you know, their, their uptake is almost at around 40 to 45%. That's because of the importance of having a collaborative approach between, and the missing link that's been here for the last 15 years, and why is it so low, is that the engagement of all of the financial institutions. And there is a little task force that's been put together called the Uptake Task Force for uh, RDSPs, and it's the subcommittee of Easter Seals, which have been very excellent in putting that together. Uh, if, if people want to take advantage of the, this particular program, the collaboration between the financial institutions, the uh, not-for-profit and government working together is a way to achieve it. 
Fraser, certainly appreciate the informative uh, chat this morning. Thanks for making time. Again, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Patty. Thank you, Fraser. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Now, that's going to be helpful to a bunch of people listening to the show this morning. You know full well. And we have the links. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Trevor has been waiting five weeks for a heart surgery. We'll hear Trevor's story right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Trevor. You're on the air. Hi, Trevor, on line three. Trevor, are you there? Yes, yes. Okay, go right ahead. You're on the air. Yes, uh, I mean, again, they're out there for five weeks now. Trying to get it changed out. Did you open that surgery? Okay. And what's going on with that? Yeah, it's just somebody. Not good, eh? No, there's a lot of people waiting a long time. Maybe move the phone away from your face just a little bit so we can maybe hear you a little clearer, Trevor. Okay, you hear me clear now? Yeah, that's much better. So, did you have a, a surgery scheduled that has been postponed, or how did it work? You were admitted because, obviously, you needed a procedure done, so was there ever a date set? No, I would be going to St. John's and put some stints in that end, but I was gone too far. You're 75% over, right? So, they sent me back again to the hospital, and I'm here now five weeks now. So, what has been done to prep you? So, you've had a dye test. You went to the cath lab. Yes. And they've identified that you need what in particular done? If you've grown, uh, if it's gone beyond stents, so what are they needing to do? Get the open heart surgery. Okay. A bypass. Right, I understand. So, who knows how many involved in this bypass procedure, but have they given you any indication, Trevor, when you can expect to be called in? No, I was picking up two weeks ago. I'm still not caught in. Every day he says, oh, you haven't heard nothing. I haven't heard nothing. I'm still going to take myself out of this place. Yeah, they probably won't discharge you. I mean, because even when we hear people were waiting for yeah, a doctor. You know, I'll just sign myself out. Right? There's no good. Five weeks in here, buddy, right? It don't make sense to me. Well, there are. You don't even tell me nothing, right? It's heavy on the mind, waiting all that time. Right. Hard on the head. It is, very hard. Depressing and everything. Do you have uh, family, Trevor? Yes. So it's hard on them, too. You know it's hard on them, too. Right. Well, is there anything they can do or what? Well, you know what? When it comes to jumping the queue in healthcare, I don't know if anybody has the the contacts to be able to do it. I know full well I don't, and I think yeah, people have a hard time. Do the, gov- the government do it in the government age or what? Well, I, this is where sometimes the politicians really don't have much to do and sometimes I think it's a good thing Trevor that a politician can't move someone to the top of the queue whether it be for a cataract surgery or a bypass or what have you because that's where operations need to be in the hands of the doctors the Dr. Sean Connors of the world who have to prioritize who needs to be seen next and hopefully your name is very near the top it should be It's a long time to be waiting in the hospital, and it's another hospital bed that could be used for someone who maybe needs to be in the hospital as opposed to simply waiting for a procedure for five weeks. Exactly. Trevor, keep us in the loop. Call back and tell Dave if you get any information. 
Alright, thank you. I wish you good luck. Oh, okay, take care. Yeah, five weeks of wild waves, no doubt about that. Let's go to line number one. Maddie, you're on the air. Hey, Patty, good morning. How you doing? I'm doing okay this morning, thanks. How about you? Uh, good, you can hear me loud and clear, can you? Not too bad, thanks. Perfect. Um, just calling in. Um, I had a brief uh, brief chat this morning. I'm calling in regarding uh, a group that's been set up uh, in memory of, uh, of Ben Olivero, uh, the, young, the young man that passed away uh, tragically there last week. Um, so just kind of trying to spread some awareness. And uh, and the goal here is kind of the end goal, I guess, for Tina. And, and, and I'm, I'm helping out as somebody who's... Uh, Who's gone through the addiction uh, themselves, and uh, and, and I mean, I'm in the early stages of recovery process. Just was at a Crosby House in uh, in Nova Scotia there last month, so I'm uh, I'm I'm kind of trying to do what I can to help her in some ways, whatever way I can. And uh, and uh, we're starting a, a GoFundMe that will be shared on the uh, Ben Olivero Facebook page. You'll be able to find all the info there. Uh, Ben's Law is the name of the page, so you can head over there and find all the uh, all the info. And essentially, the goal here is is to try to create some a healing home. Uh, within the city of St. John's, I mean, it's it's absolutely uh, it's almost atrocious uh, to think of the uh, the mental health and addictions uh, system home. I mean, I, I'm currently in Nova Scotia, and I mean, my, if it wasn't for my family and and people that were able to support me to get me to Nova Scotia to get me to a rehabilitation center, I mean, I, I very well could have could have been me. I mean, this was a, what's going on home is just. It, I, I was essentially told when I was looking for treatment that uh, it was a 12 week wait. I didn't have 12 weeks. And I mean, they essentially what I was told was, I said, you know, what am I supposed to do if I can't get to a treatment center away or somewhere else in Canada? What am I supposed to do? You know, this is some serious stuff. I was, I was real sick. And they essentially, I was told to go in and out of detox. So I said, go into detox for four days, get out of detox and use again, then go back to detox. I said, this is just madness. So Tina's goal here and, and what I'm going to try to help do, and we're going to try to get the community involved to, uh, to set up a, a healing home or, or, or could be multiple, uh, a place where people can, can try to get some early stages of help if they're trying to get in treatment if they're trying to get trying to get better i mean it, it's a it's a tough thing to battle and i mean we're like like you can plainly see people are dying you know in in, our, in the streets of our home and it seems like not a lot's being done about it you know it's it's a, it's a tragedy and i mean i'm sure I'm, I'm i know i'm preaching but it is it is what it is you know it, it, well of course it is there's you know there's the wait time issue and then there's the amount of time you're actually able to stay in rehab right. in this right. province which is not adequate for so many no. who are struggling so no. what what does a healing house mean is that basically so well, well, essentially, I mean, uh, to, to, to me, the, through, through the information I've got from Tina, I mean, a healing home uh, would be somewhere, essentially, it would be somewhere that you could detox. It would be somewhere where there'd be, there'd be people that kind of know how to deal with this, this, uh, this, this, this illness that is known as addiction. I mean, it's an illness at the end of the day. If you, and, and, and something that was said to me that really sprung uh, something inside of me, I said, you know, somebody said, if you, were, if you had cancer and you couldn't, get, you couldn't see a doctor home, they'd send you somewhere. They'd send you somewhere to get some help. They'd, they'd do what they could. But if, you're, if, you have, if, if you suffer with addiction in Newfoundland or Labrador and they can't find anywhere, well, you're on your own. If you can't wait, you're on your own. It's, it's absolutely terrible. So essentially the healing home uh, would be somewhere where people could be, be, have somewhere safe to go. You'd have somewhere safe to be sober. You'd have somewhere safe to get the information you need to try to get you some help. I mean, that's what's – and it's not that there's no help. It's not that there's not people doing it. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's people, you know, scattered throughout the province, little independent places that, that, that you can go to for help, but they're far and few in between. 
And people are, it, it's hard to do it. There's, and, and people aren't talking about it. The stigma and addiction, for me going through it, I mean, I worked in the music industry for years, and anybody that knows knows that, I mean, it wasn't a very easy decade. I, I, it was a tragedy, and I just could not, to me, there was nothing, nothing there, was, there was not enough information for me to even say, to contemplate it until it was almost too late. And uh, and you know it it, it it is it's just a, it's a it's a tragedy and and it's and it's so sad to me and, and I know Tina as well that people just cannot see it. I mean, like you know, yes, there's shelters in in St. John's and yes, there's there's different programs and stuff, but it's not easily accessible. I mean, when I when I wanted to see an addictions counselor, I had to I had to go through a process of about a month just to get a referral to get a, to get on a waiting list for another 14 weeks to get into a treatment center. So, so something like the Healing House would be a way to have some people that have some knowledge of different programs. You have a safe place if you need a safe place to stay. You have, you know, you need a place to sleep, well, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Not necessarily a rehab, but, I mean, you know, down the road, who knows? I mean, that's, there, there definitely needs to be something more within the city of St. John's, and it needs to be more accessible to people. It's, it's so hard to get the information. I mean, for somebody that's, that's, that's going through active addiction, and you could be living on the streets, or you could be living, who knows? You, you, you might not have access. We, we, we need something. We, we people are dying. Young people are dying. Right. So, they so are. essentially, what we're looking to do, we're we're it's going to be a community. We're going to try to get the community involved. I mean, T- Tina's got a Tina's got a big reach, and there's a big lot of support going on on the online community now. So the goal is to set up a a, a, a page where people can access, you know, donations or ideas or whatever. And we're going to try to get a the, the Ben Olivero Healing Home open up in the city of St. John's. I mean, that's what that's essentially the end goal here. I mean, it's it's to it's to try to you know let's let's try to save some lives instead of just instead of talking about. It. I mean, it's fine. Yes, there's lots of support and. There's people talking about it. It's fine to talk about it, but if you're just talking about it, what the you know, what's that going to do? You're just talking about it. You're just talking. Yeah, not right? a lot. Uh, listen, I wish you well in your recovery, Adam. So what? Or pardon me, Maddie. Uh, where well, exactly do I people need that. to go for the info? So you'll be able to go on Facebook. You head over to Facebook, and the name of the page here is Ben's Law. It's called the Right to Have an Addiction Free Life. So you type that in, Ben's Law, right up on Facebook. Anybody wants personal information or anybody that needs information and maybe you're struggling, I know you can reach out to Tina Oliveira on Facebook and you can find me on the Maddie I wish you well in your recovery. Thanks for this. I appreciate it, brother. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, just a couple of quick things here. So, I mean, there's pleas out there for, you know, I'm not surprised, but I'm a little disheartened to know that. Some of these conversations, people are willing to write me and say, too bad about them. I mean, you know, we stop, we try to prevent all sorts of other societal evils and ills and sicknesses and deaths. You know, there's, it's the stigma that really hurts this uh, conversation. There was a gentleman who wrote me an email last week, and uh, in his family, one of his children needs to carry around an EpiPen, has a severe food allergy. And of course, he's saying to me, you know, free naloxone kits for the drug addicts, but how about the extraordinary cost for me to have a couple of EpiPens, one on him, one in school, and then one if he needs to use it. And he says, you know, we'll try to spin that. I'm not, I don't, I don't spin things because I'm not in the business of spinning. I just find that to be tedious and really counterproductive. It's a classic example of big pharma gouging people. I mean, you can't do it without your insulin. You can't do it without your EpiPen. And so, yeah, to talk about how that cost is subsidized and or helped or covered and how insurance companies approach those things is an important conversation. The problem there is that there's no stigma associated with having a food allergy. There is with having a drug addiction. 
and if you can't get help even if you want it and it's well if you can't get it in a timely fashion then maybe it's just a position to have a conversation about the healthcare crisis that it is versus what has long been the issue calling it a criminal justice issue it could be a bit of both but it's really a healthcare issue isn't it let's take a break don't go away Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. I want to start off with uh, expressing what I hope many people feel, just just joy that, that Nicole Kiley is uh, making progress, and I just want to send along, join with I'm sure everybody else, healing positive vibes to her. Keep going, girl. And if people aren't aware, uh, she was involved in that accident at the uh, Shoppers Drug Mart where the car crashed into the building. She was caught in between the two immovable objects and suffered catastrophic injuries. She did, but she's a trooper, and so I'm looking forward to her progressing and seeing her out and about sooner, sooner rather than later. Here, here. I'm actually on Fogo Island today doing some work, and uh, I ran into an older retired couple who last year drove right across Canada from San Francisco, and uh, this year came back, and they're staying on Fogo Island at one trailer park for three months, and they could go anywhere they wanted in the world. Like, they're leaving here when they drive back to San Francisco, which is an unimaginable drive in a camper, uh, and then they're going to go to Hawaii for like six weeks. So, So in the entire world, these people could have spent their summer and they chose a, li- a little, a little place in Togo Island. I just think it says so much about our incredible province. We get lots of offer. We take a lot of it for granted. We do. Mm-hmm. The main reason for my call is uh, I've been involved with the St. Vincent de Paul and Corpus Christi, uh, which which lost its site when the when the church was bought by the Cal family um, last year. And so they they in May they ceased operations temporarily. And they were given some assurances by certain members of the government that they would find a space for them. And today they're having a meeting because they they actually may put everything in storage. And uh, now their storage unit is up. And uh, and they're the only, according according to the website on food banks, they're the only uh, food bank in the West End of St. John's serving people and the and the volunteers who run that organization. They're the heart and soul. Of of that part of the community, and you know they have great connections with the different grocery stores to get you know food that is still got lots of life left in it, and and they just make that money go as far as they can. All volunteers, of course, and they have money in the bank, and they are contacting all levels of government, municipal, provincial, federal, and nobody's returning their calls. Uh, and uh, so today they're they're going to have to make the difficult decision what the next step is, and you know many people within the uh, not-for-profit have been, community have been trying to find a space for them. Um, but again, you know, deaf ears seemingly and, and, and you know, desperately needed, obviously, for the, or the individuals and families that rely on that particular food bank to be served. Because it's not just like another food bank to pick up the slack here, right? You know, I say these things uh, a lot, and I keep saying it. 
We see governments mobilized in times of crisis, and justifiably so. On the world of food, not so much. The one-time Band-Aid solution that was a food bank is now the full-on reliant. Uh, our Canadians to the tune of 4 to 5 million are fully reliant on food banks. It is a distinct failure in governance. Modern-day Canada, with the opportunities we have to provide, and I don't mean just giving stuff away. I'm not talking about straight up everyone eats for free. I'm talking about just more control of production and distribution and you know pragmatic approaches to food security. We take some of those opportunities, but we don't take anywhere near enough. Clear example to me would be community gardens, backyard farming, and homesteading, all navigated by a pre-Confederation bit of British law from 1947. Like, we've just got to get out of our own way here. You know, it's, it's really difficult to figure out why the people who have the ability to do something, and it isn't just 40 MHAs, obviously. There's, there's a lot of people who, both in private and in government, who I mean, I guess I guess we're insulated. I guess I guess we're not allowing ourselves to see all these crises and see the knock-on effects and watch as our society crumbles down around us. Because I guess we're okay. We you know we're you know we still have lots of food and our houses are still warm. And but we don't realize you know it, there's running out, we're running out of runway and um, we're all on that airplane like we're all in the same boat. We you know we may have different maybe we in different floors. We may have. Um, you know, but we're all rowing together over not. And and when I reflect upon how so many people are so caught up in, I guess their lives, and and I also I understand it. I I just feel like I'm just wondering who expects everybody to fix it. Like 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 who's going to be the ones to fix it if we as individuals and families and community leaders and and just just everybody else doesn't do it. I mean, you know, we we talk about. How you know we have so many incredible employees, both the public sector and, and not-for-profit, who who really keep the place going. But I really don't see a change in tone that I would expect to see. Like you know, you touched on learning loss. Like it's a really good example. You know, you would think if it's a <clears throat> if it's a future-oriented, child-focused education system served by people who really care about the long-term best interests of the children and by default the province then learning loss would be the key and we'd be turning ourselves inside out to try and figure out how we get our children back on track because they're the future nurses doctors uh business people of the future and every one of them we lose you know is one that that we don't have in the future to help help keep the place going and you know food banks are kind of a micro part of that if a lot of times that can be a bridge to get in and for children of families that, for one reason or another, are food insecure, uh, you know, that might help that child, just like the school lunch program or the breakfast club, can help a child maybe come through the ringer of a not-so-great family life and come out the other end and be part of the solution. And, you know, I, and I think about how many people, I mean, 30, 16% of our population, um, working population, is between 50 and 54 and for many people in the public service in particular, who obviously we, we pay and rely and, and hope are going to be there to solve us, 16% of our workforce are, are, you know, are in that band. And a lot of them, instead of thinking about solving the problems and solutions, they're thinking about when they're going to retire because they're trying to do the math. Um, does it make sense for me to keep working? And it's a financial equation. And, and this province can't afford everybody – especially the key people, the people who we've invested in and who've helped build this province to check out at 55 or 54 or 57 or 58. And I really reflect a lot upon where people's moral 
like where the moral responsibility is for all of us, and this is also in the private sector, because if every if you decide to retire at 55 and whatever that means, and I decide I'm just going to check out, like things just stop functioning, and 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 we all have that responsibility. But so just one second, if I'm financially able to call it a day at 55, how am I harming or hurting anyone? Well, if we feel like we're li- we live in a community and that we're all cogs in the wheel of the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And if everybody's focused on in their individual quality of life, whatever that means, and the pursuit of, of, I guess, pleasure or entertainment or hedonism or however you want to define it is the defining factor of how we make our life decisions. First of all, I will argue that that does not make us happy. We may think it is, but it's superficial happiness. I think if most people reflect, if they have a career or a job that they enjoy, that they get feedback from, I think they would, if they reflect upon it, that is the thing that might give them the most pleasure in the life. When I don't mean like immediate hedonistic pleasure, I just mean satisfaction in life, purpose. And I, and I think everybody has to contemplate that because as hospitals are shut down, it is not because there aren't enough people in the province to do it. And it's not because they're all moving to Alberta or Ontario or United States. It's because more and more people are either working less um, or just choosing to retire. now. I'm into working smart, not hard, personally. And if I can take care of myself with whatever I've stowed away, regardless of my age, and someone backfills me to keep the tax base exactly where it was as opposed to minus one, I don't know how I've hurt anybody if I can pull that off. Now, (laughs) being bluntly honest, I can't do that, and I can't pull it off, and I'll be working for the foreseeable future. But anyway, uh, last thought, Tom, before I have to take a break. Well, I mean, I will argue that, that that I don't know who will replace you when you decide to leave. So that's the first thing. So like, you, you, have big, you have big shoes to fill. Oh. And there isn't magically another Patty Daly sitting in the wings. I don't look around and see them. And like you say, well, maybe Brian Callen could fill your shoes. Well, guess what? He's the same age. And when you look at hospitals that are being closed, I mean, I think, I think that, that people need to consider the fact we live longer. And it's an arbitrary age of Freedom 55 that was invented by probably, uh, you know, in, advisors, investment advisors. And probably a time when we had way more people uh, uh, entering the workforce than we're leaving. And I think that it's now an outdated thing. And the United States is pushing theirs to 71. I mean, France has turned themselves inside out, which is one of the most socialist countries in the world, to push it to 63. But magically, we still have it at – now, we, we did in 2015 move it so employees who were hired after that would couldn't retire until I think it's 57 or 58. But that still is a long time, and I don't know who's going to do the work. And these are difficult conversations. But I think people need to feel some obligation to keep the hospitals, the schools, the roads, and the businesses, and everything open. And if, cause if everybody checks out, as, which is what's happening now, you can see the results when hospitals close. Anyway, guys, stay safe. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Tom. Take care. All right, goodbye. And know, retirement age is an interesting one, right? I believe the whole 65 years of age and pensionable age comes from Germany, of all places. But we have to remember, at that point, I can't, I can't quote off the top of my head exactly what life expectancy was, but it was much lower than it is today. So yes, even in this country, moving from 65 to 67 being phased in over the course of the next number of years, because 65 used to be we only had X percentage of the population made it to 65. Now with the advancements in medical uh, technologies and innovations and supports and treatments, people are living longer. 
and the another CBP, for instance, is in a pretty solid footing, uh, economically speaking. But that's an interesting conversation to entertain if you're so inclined. All right. I've seen in the news that the town of Lewisport has taken over operations of the wharf. And as it says right in the name of the town, Lewisport is a port town. Perry Pond is a councillor and the chair of the economic development with the town of Lewisport to talk about the implications of taking over operations at the wharf right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to one of the town councillors in Lewisport. He's also the chair of the Economic Development Committee. That's Perry Pond. Good morning, Perry. You're on the air. Good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So right off the bat, you know, is it the right way to say it that you are just taking over operations? There's reference to an acquisition, but is it correct to say the government simply turned over the operational concerns and authority to the town of Lewisport? Yeah, it was part of a, a package uh, as a result of the closure of the Coastal Labrador Service. Uh, we lobbied government to help us offset that loss. And a part of a package, there's a $10 million pot of money as well as the infrastructure that was formerly used for that, that service. So about half of that money is going to have to be spent on the wharf itself. What is the state or the status of the wharf? I mean, it's enormous. If anyone's ever been to Lewisport, it's like five or 600 feet long. What kind of condition is it in? Well, it, it needs some it needs some significant investment, you know, in, in the terms of millions of dollars. But uh, we're confident with the money that the province gave us and with some partnerships we're about to, you know, to uh, unleash, we should be able to uh, make it functional. We're confident in that. When things were at their peak in Lewisport and all kinds of marine traffic, regular freight, passenger, what have you. But then, of course, it goes on to say in the new story, of course, you support the continued construction and extension of the Trans-Labrador Highway. But when that took away a lot of the activities at your report, where do you and your members of council and members of your economic development committee see economic opportunities if it was once reliant on, you know, goods and passengers going to Lewisport or pardon me, to Labrador? Well, yeah, historically there was no need to look for other opportunities because it was a, a government-owned asset. Formerly it was the federal government operated the service, and then since 97 the province took it over. So we didn't need to find any other uses. But, uh, you know, with the, the downgrading and eventual closure, uh, we, you know, we, we think there is an opportunity for it. And, uh, you know, we've had our irons in a couple of fires, you know, trying to get a feel for what's out there in terms of operations. And we are confident that with the investment, that the province has given us that we can find a future use for it and it can can become an economic engine as it's been for the past 50 years. Uh, Is it possible to share examples of some of the tires you've been kicking? Well, I mean, the offshore industry has been, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's sort of in a, you know, it's it's still there and it'll always be part of Newfoundland's economy for the foreseeable future. And, you know, there's drilling activity, you know, moving further west, which puts us, you know, in a direct line in terms of, supply base operations and that sort of stuff. The mining industry is booming in central Newfoundland on both sides of us. So, you know, we think there's an opportunity there. Uh, you know, the hydrogen program, uh, Botwood in particular, is, is uh, you know, off to stage one with respect to their project. So we feel anything that, that's benefit to the region will benefit us. And, and uh, if we were to invest in any economic opportunities, we feel the port needs to be front and center to that. So that's why we're confident that... Uh, we can make this work. Uh, let's talk about that exploits group, uh, the hub would be in Botwood. I'm not necessarily familiar with the exact size of the footprint of the wharf. I do know, I, I mean, I've seen the wharf, and I know that it needs a roll-on, roll-off ramp. Yeah. But for lay-down opportunities, describe the footprint that you have to avail of, whether it be with formal warehousing or just simply yard space. Well, we had, you know, the wharf itself, 600 feet, has enclosed storage on it. Uh, but, you know, the lay-down area adjacent to it is five or six hectares. 
And adjacent to that, with a direct line of, of uh, you know, is the former Lab Labs, Lewisford Wholesale Facility, 120,000 square foot facility that's underutilized right now, privately owned, but we know it's, it's in the market for occupants. So we feel we have the attributes to play a role in a lot of different industries. And uh, again, if we if we are going to be uh, investing in our economic future, we feel the port needs to be front and center to that. The long-term plan, obviously, for success and for revenue to be generated, but say, you know, burning through $10 million sounds like a lot of money, but when you're pursuing economic opportunity and half of that money might be simply to refurbish or to upgrade existing facilities, is there a time frame when operational operational concerns need to be self-funded as opposed to uh, grant, for instance, in this case? Well, yes. I mean, right now, there's it's, going, it's an eight- to ten-month process, probably a little longer to actually obtain ownership the province has just made a commitment to actually transfer it to us so that process same as buying a house we have to work through the due diligence process environmental concerns surveys and all that sort of stuff Uh, but during that time we're going to continue on with our uh, efforts to find partnerships and that's where we think it needs to be we don't think the town of lewisport is going to be in the operations of a port nor did we ever have any intentions we just wanted to be in the driver's seat with respect to finding partners that can come on board with management and operational expertise as long as investment. So we, you know, we, we haven't given ourselves any timelines, but we feel you know, over the next three to four years, we should see some activity and sort of have some success with our efforts. I don't know what would be fair to characterize from the east end of town about what things are like in Lewisport, but if, like in 2008, the things and the water and the beans started to change somewhat, what's the robust nature or the economy of scale in the town of Lewisport today, and how important would this new uh, stream of revenue hopefully be, or is, you know, is it the economy strong where you are? Oh, yeah, the economy is strong and, being, and, was, and has been really resilient. I mean, uh, back in the 70s and 80s when the Coastal Service was at its peak, it was 350 jobs at, at that site alone. And, you know, in, in 1996-97 when the province decided to put a, a big effort into road uh, construction in Labrador, which we support 100%, we saw a slow bleed. 2010, we lost the passenger service. And then in 2018, the decision was made to actually eliminate the Coastal Service. So... We've taken seven years to convince the province that they had to come on side and help us financially to uh, overcome the loss of that service. But our business community is resilient. I think we have a, we have a real strong uh, business community with respect to the size of our community. And, you know, we just feel that if there's any, uh, any economic future in Lewisport, the port has to be a part of that. So that's why we're putting all of our efforts into ensuring that that is a viable operational uh, so now well into the future. Have you had the opportunity to kick tires beyond, say, the local mining boom, which is happening right around Lewisport? We all know it to be true in Central, and I would suggest throughout the province we're going to see big opportunities in mining. Are the gang, for instance, in the wind, the hydrogen, ammonia? I'm not going to ask you to speak on behalf of Exploits Renewables, but where's their head? Uh, are they bullish about their opportunities for a business model for their own uh, projects or position they have with the province? Because on the Port of Port Peninsula, there's whatever percentage of the population vocally opposed, but what the exact opposite. Everyone seems what, quite optimistic and quite bullish. How about the company? Yeah, well, I mean, we're, we're not engaged, obviously, but we feel as, you know, we, that the town of Botwood is, needs, you know, they've done an excellent job in terms of taking an opportunity as presented to them. And they've dealt their hardships over the years with the loss of Abitibi. And they've they've went out and they found a partner that can actually help them move an opportunity in, in the right direction. So I know hats off to them. And we're hoping to do a similar thing uh, with our port. 
So, you know, we, uh, they, we don't know much about what they're actually doing, but we do know that, uh, as it seems, they've uh, done a fabulous job in terms of putting together the partnerships that they need to take advantage of an up-and-coming opportunity. I really appreciate the time this morning, Perry. Anything else you'd like to say? Uh, no, no, just uh, let everyone know to stay tuned, and uh, we're confident that we can make this and take this to the next level. Stay in touch. Good luck. Thank you. You're welcome, Perry. Bye-bye. Bye. Perry Pound is a town councillor out in Lewisport, chair of the Economic Development Committee. Let's take a break. I've been told there might be some pockets of dead air out there. If you let me know exactly where you are, we can pass along your concerns to the engineering department. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, home care. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Clayton, you're on the air. Yes, hello. Uh, I'm calling today. I'm a senior citizen. I live in the senior complex. I get on for work three times a week. I just had two stints put in not too long ago. I didn't take down that long. My own care work went from 120 to $152, $32 jump. And the government's not helping us none. They're not helping seniors here. They won't help us here. We got cottages. We got to fight to get anything done here. We got to fight with them to get anything done here. I know a lady just up from me. Two, a year and a half ago, almost two now, she called on about uh, leaky faucets down on the number. That's what they're doing. They're neglecting the seniors here. Not helping us. I need help with this 150. The government should be helping us more. Who pays your bill? Uh, Who pays your bill? Well, I'm paying 150. The government pays so much. But they're... 150 out of a fixed income was a lot. And the groceries gone for the roof. Everything's gone for the roof. You know, it's hurt. Well, there's no argument that everything's gone through the roof. Uh, everyone knows it to be true, regardless of what you touch or where you go. Yeah, but uh, the government's in there with all kinds of money to show everywhere else. And I can tell you where they're throwing it at everywhere else and they're not helping the seniors they're ignoring us they're not doing right by us me and my buddy was just down just got back a little while ago from down in front of the government building protesting with signs fighting for the seniors we need something done the government got to get wake up there the seniors that can't afford to buy a hall for their homes. It's ridiculous what's going on here in, uh, in Newfoundland with the seniors because our government is ignoring us. Uh, it's it's well, hard for me to argue that people are struggling. I mean, I hear the stories every single day, as you know. Yeah, well, I know you do, yes. And there's a lot of people there trying to get things done in our cottages here. Can't get it done. They're trying, and some of them. Now let me put it to you this way: There's people got more there, and they're frightened to call because frightened they'll get in trouble. Seniors, that's the problem with it. Frightened they get in trouble if they call. I'm not afraid to call. I'm not afraid to fight the government. How would you get in trouble? What What do you mean by that? How is anyone going to get in trouble? I don't know what they're thinking, but that's what they think. So they get 
get evicted or something. That's because they fight the government. You gotta fight them. You gotta go after them. They and my buddy is doing it. We go down with signs down by the government building. But down there this morning. And what does he science say? What is he focused on in particular? Any one focus area or just he needs help? Well, my buddy, he's on a fixed income. And he's got to pay for all of his drugs. He's, he's a diabetes. he got to pay for all of his drugs. And it's costing the fortune. He's $18,000 in the hole now on his, on his visa card. Paying for his drugs. So he's everything else he got to pay for. He's one after the government been after him and help and he got blocked in every way. Every way they could block him, be blocked him. And I'm gonna tell you, it's time that that liberal government started helping the people. Eleven million for those just coming over here for moving. Why not give some to the seniors, help the seniors? I know they need help. Those people come over here. I have nothing against them. I know there's a war over in their country. But hey, those seniors, a lot of those seniors, they had people fight for this country, and they fight for this country. Don't you think they should get more help than what they're getting money? Well, the number of people, uh, seniors and otherwise, who are struggling mightily is obviously very, very real. I mean, the my purchasing power, the definition of who is able to uh, make their own way, whoever belongs in the middle class, these things have changed since I've been sitting in this chair, and they've changed a great deal. So, yeah, I mean, the struggles are mighty, and I'm not, I would never say or suggest that they're not. No, and they, and sir, you just said something. Uh, middle class, there's no middle class anymore. It's the poor and the rich. It feels like it. it. The middle class is certainly a much smaller group than it once was. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. I'm telling you, because it's... And then they're starting up new... Uh, wants more money for new suites for needle for, for people convicting themselves, drug, drug people on drugs. Yeah, uh, there's a, there's a savings there. Harm reduction is actually a very positive thing to do, whether it be talk about um, uh, dollars and cents or societal issues. I mean, it just <laughs> is. People get sick and end up in the hospital. No more, nothing more expensive in this country than being in the hospital. So I think there's some sense to be uh, attached to that particular decision regarding harm reduction. I know people don't like to hear it because they think we're just all trying to get everyone on drugs. I don't do those drugs, so I'm not suggesting no, anybody should. But if I you, don't do drugs either. If you get sick because of them, then you just it, it comes with enormous cost and no matter how you slice it uh clayton i appreciate the time anything else you want to say before i take another call yeah well, okay. you go into the hospital there in corner book eight eight nine hours waiting and then that they put you in, in, in the class that everybody that comes in after three comes in they're sitting there for a while in the waiting room with you and they just call in any and you're just sitting there waiting for eight nine 10 hours. Yeah, that, that's a triage issue. Priori- yeah. Priority. It's not priority. It's who you know, too. And we know that. Okay. We've seen it in there. And people complain to it. I've seen people yeah. get up in the hospital, leave walking. Wouldn't wait to see a doctor. And people going in there with pains in their chest, put out in the waiting room. I was talking to one fella, flight in there from where he worked. 
proceeded doctor, he had pains in his chest. He put it in the waiting room. Wait. Come on, you got to do something. Clayton, I appreciate the time. Hope you're doing okay. Yeah, well, I need for the government to know that we need help here because I'm paying 152 towards my worker. I can't, that's, that's everybody on the fixed income. They got to do something. I know it is. I appreciate your call. You take good care. Yeah. And I thank you, too, sir. God love you. You take care. God bless. Thanks, Clayton. All the best to you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Before we get to the break, let's go ahead and take uh, the caller on five. Good morning, Linda. You're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning. Welcome to the show. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, I'd like to throw out a huge bouquet to my friend Judy Brazel from Trapassi, who won the International Brahms Crystal Award for Female Songwriter of the Year. In that, and this went ahead in Atlanta, Georgia. What's her name? Judy Brazel. Judy Brazel. What sort of competition was this? This was an international singer-songwriter yeah, in Georgia, in Atlanta, Georgia. We were supposed to go there, but Judy had some unforeseen medical problems and she wasn't allowed to fly. But she still won the award, so Amazing. I'm rather proud of her. No doubt you are. I'm just, I said no doubt you are. I'm just trying to figure yes. out what this is. So it's as simple as International Songwriting Competition. Yes. Yeah. 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 Terrific. And you say she was a silver medalist? No, uh, bronze. Oh, she bronze won the bronze. Yeah. Very cool. So way to yeah. go to Judy Marie Brazel. Yes. Yes. And I'd like to uh, hear some of her songs played on VOCM, too. It would be great, like on the Newfie show and that. Uh, well, I know the host of that particular program. I will send him this uh, information so that they're aware. So I'll send it to Sam Whiffen, who does the K-Rock uh, uh, Irish Newfoundland. Or was, is that called the Irish Newfoundland show as well as ours is? And ours is the Irish Newfoundland show that Greg hosts. I'll send it around to everyone in the, in the building that hosts those programs. See if they can give Judy a spin. Thank you very much. No I problem. No problem, Linda. Congratulations, uh, congratulations to her. And the K-Rock show is called Homebrew. Thanks, Dave. I uh, appreciate uh, this, Linda. Good information. Congratulations to Judy. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. All right. So there you go. That's good stuff. International songwriting competition. The bronze medalist from the shore. All right, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be saying uh, good morning to Don Coombs. He's with the Newfoundland Labrador Federation of School Councils. Don't go away. Welcome to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the president of the NL Federation of School Councils. That's Don Coombs. Good morning, Don. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing great, Patty. I just want to thank you for taking the call. Of course, uh, I had the privilege and honor to be at the announcement yesterday about a Premier Minister Hell and Minister Abbott on the 1.6 uh, kilometers. And uh, I think it's a great thing for the Federation of School Councils. We represent uh, the parents and guardians of the 60-plus thousand parents or guardians that are out there for the kids in our school. And this is so important, you know, uh, right across the province of Labrador. And from my, my perspective, I see it every day. I have uh, two young ladies that are in the education field, and uh, I'm getting to drive around town in the mornings. Uh, I see on certain days that uh, 
some students don't go to school and they don't walk. Maybe the rain, it may be cold, it may be snow. And you know what? Uh, in the big picture, they lose a day of learning too, Patty. So this is good for the province. It's good for the students. It's good for education. So the announcement yesterday on behalf of the Federation, we've lobbied for this for a while also. We spoke to ministers about it, and I just think it's a fantastic announcement right now and a lot of good things happening in the education system. Yeah, I, I think it's a good thing too. I mean, you know, we've been talking about this for a long, long time, and a successive governments have failed to do anything about it. And look, it's not to take away from the fact that I do think it's positive news. But when we talk about the issues facing schools and parents of school-aged children and students and teachers, administrators, and other staff, this was the easy one. Well, it's easy, but it was difficult to do, and it's done, and now we can take another challenge and move ahead with it. Uh, education and educators are one of the primary people, one of the primary careers in our province and across the country, and, you know, we want people to be there. We want the, uh, the educators to be there and support the, the students. We want students to be comfortable in getting school. So uh, th- there's another challenge to come up on another day, but yesterday uh, I speak about the announcement. I think it was a fantastic day for the province of Newfoundland Labrador, and great that we got it done before the September the 1st the Labor Day weekend when they go back to school and you know it's go- it's going to have an effect and it's going to be a positive effect on the, the the students in our school system and next year we'll have everybody included I think it's 4,000 this year is the number with the schools being announced that are going to be done this year so it's continuing to work together in collaboration cooperation and to be a partner in education and you know we got PACE coming on board now by December 31st which is the Provincial Advisory Committee on Education that I had the privilege of sitting on for the last year and a half or two years putting that in place so there's good things happening in our education we'll still have the lobby for other things you said and you know eliminate 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 but yesterday was a good day in education in the province what are some of the things you worked on with the pace group the PACE group is the transition from the English school district to the government, and uh, uh, we, we sat for a year and a half putting out bylaws, constitutions, and everything else. We went through uh, several people at the department, Patricia and uh, a few other people, and it was a lot of work, a lot of time, a lot of effort, so we can straighten things away at the school council level across the province, and, and I, I think it was important that we have continuity with our school councils, continuity for our parents, and a line to Federation building that PACE is going to enable and uh, you know we'll get good people to run for school councils now and uh, it'll be a regional effect so every region every part of the province is going to be represented with 11, 11 different people so it's a good thing Patty and uh, sitting at the Federation school councils for the last two years last five years and being on school councils for 20 odd you know, you see challenges, and uh, I, I got the opportunity. And I want to thank uh, uh, the department for letting me have that opportunity, along with our executive director, Denise Pike, to, to have input and to help make change and positive change. How is it going to change the way your group operates with this blending of the district into the government? What, what do people need to understand here? Because I still hear lots of confusion out there, especially from, for instance, administrators. They're still not 100% sure how this is all going to work. I'm sure we'll all find out in due course, but due course starts in a month. So how is it going to change the way things operate? Well, the way it's going to change for basically for the school, the administration, I think they'll have more they'll have more authority to do things within the structure that's there. It's going to be laid out, so that's going to be a good thing. I, I guess getting uh, it out and having it done for December 31st is is a, a task in itself. It was supposed to be March, and then it got put through till June or September. And now it's December, but I think, and I speak to administrators because I sit on two school councils, that I think it's going to be better for you as administrators. You won't have to wait forever for some answers and stuff. The English school. This 
district is going to be absorbed with the Department of Education, which I think is a positive, and it's to get things more efficiently, more quickly, and in a positive manner for the administration of the schools. And everybody will know what the role is, and, and that's important. You know, when I hear tell of administrators that are waiting for a month or six weeks for an answer for something, that, that's unacceptable. You know, everything about education is about the people that sit in the in the chairs. It's about the students, and we have to provide them with the best opportunities we can, and that's a positive thing going forward, Patty. For sure. I've heard in some corners, now we know that there's many disciplines that are working for the government that are really, it's either unable to or unwilling to speak for fear, and whether or not that's an exaggerated fear or real, I'll leave that up to individuals. But here's one thought, and I'll get your reaction, because this is an important part of running healthcare and education in particular. It's the worry that there might be more political decisions made versus how trustees, councils input, people working boots on the ground, you know, the the distinction between the politics of education and the actual administering of education. Has anybody brought forward that type of worry? Because I think we're going to hear some of that. Because when you're not going to Tony Stack, but you're going to a deputy minister, two different kind of uh, roles, two different kind of people. Well, I think, Patty, that, you know, some people, and we speak about it a lot, some people are going to be negative anyway. Uh, And you know what, you get your calls, and uh, I get people saying the same thing. I I, I truly believe that the education system is better off because of the announcements that have been made. Uh, There's going to be people critical when I speak to school administrators, as I just said, and folks, you're going to have more power. You're going to have power to run your school. The, the, the setup is with 11 people across the province and, and Labrador, you know, we're going to have regional representation. We're going to have regional meetings. We're going to have our school councils more involved, more engaged in what's happening in their school community. And it, it's going to be a team uh, effort. And I think it's going to work. But, Petty, are we going to please everybody? You can't be 100% to 100% of the people 100% of the time. And as people are going to be critical of the 1.6, and I think we're the first province in the country to remove that. And I, I stand correct. There's just so much people, and we have so many educators that are so valuable in our system to the students, and I think that's important to recognize. And, you know, I've got, as I said earlier, I've got two young ladies in the education system, and they want to make a career out of it, and it's a chosen career where you get to deal with the students, the future, our, our biggest resources are students never mind oil and gas and the offshore and everything else it's our students that it's our young people coming up and they have enough challenges so as long as we can make the education system the best we can for them that's what's important to me 100 percent. for me the structure is the least of my worries it's the outcomes that i worry about so if this is going to make it better and more streamlined lines of communication maybe some potential savings that can be re-injected into the system i'm all for it like again the, the structure and who's idea it is that is the very least of my worries regardless of what we're talking about and, and Patty, you, you want the same thing uh, that I want. And uh, sitting as the chair of the federation, you know, when we speak down, we speak about the school system overall. I want to see equal education for every student in this province. Now I want to see students get to school. I don't want to see school students going to school hungry. I want things for them to enable them to be in the best environment they can to learn. And I think these are all steps towards it. And are we finished? No, we're not finished. We have other challenges ahead. We'll continue to meet with government. We'll continue to lobby. We'll continue to get input from our school councils across the province in Labrador, and uh, we'll continue to make it a better place for every student in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. I appreciate the time this morning, Don. Stay in touch. Keep me in the loop. I will, Patty. You take care and have a great day. The very same to you, Don. Thank you. Don Coombs is the president of the NL Federation of School Councils. Let's go. Line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Mr. Daly. Morning to you. I want to have a little chat to you about uh, tar and rim protection 
that's offered at dealerships or here across the island. Sure. Which is an option. Option to me means you either want it or you don't want it. Correct? Generally speaking, that's what I yeah. consider to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like to have this and I like to have this question answered. Okay. But uh, I've been dealing with a few dealerships in the last couple of weeks, and you don't want the option out on a pre-owned vehicle. Like charging four ninety nine, six twenty nine on tire and rim protection for three years or four years. But I don't know what you don't know the meaning of no. But it's still charging me. It's an option. So is it an option in the new world or is it an option in the new and the used world? It's in the new and the used. Okay. So if like is it declared as an option right there on the yes, paperwork? Yes sir. yes, sir, it is. Yep. So isn't there a way that you can strike an X in the no, refuse or rejected box? Yes, sir. That's that's the that's 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 the that's the rule. That's the there's a few dealerships here on the island that will option out. But when you go to pay for the vehicle, no, do you want to take that option off? Yikes, I'm not sure what to say to that because if I'm presented with an option, I get to make a decision. If I think it's worth the, the money spent, just in case I beat my ribs up on a pothole, then fair enough. But if I don't want it, I take my chances. That's exactly. And like you say, we all know there's a administration fee. Yes, we all know that. But yeah, that's paperwork not, fee, yeah. But that's not something that just new tire and rim protection on a pre-owned vehicle or a new one. You know, it's a... So, I purchased a vehicle, but I still had to pay that. No, they wouldn't optionate on me. I, I didn't know that that was happening. So uh, just again for clarification, this was a used rig? A pre-owned vehicle, yeah. Pre-owned vehicle. I know people in the car business. I'll just, you know, pepper it around from different uh, shops, whether or not they option it out or they just force you to take it. It's hard to force me to take an option, but, yeah. Well, that's, that's, what it it sounds like, that's what it sounds like to me. They, they force it on me, but like you say, it's an, it's an option, you know. It's, it's an option uh, and uh, not only that, we also had to pay the the ninety dollars taxes to the government, correct? Right? Yeah, that's right. You know, it's a, it's a, if there's an easy way for you to find out that, like I say, there is some dealerships do option out. And I was even talking to a salesman, and he told me up front, yeah, we are, we are forced to tell the customer that that this is not an option. You know, you, you're telling you the salesman saying, but uh, some salesmen do not force that onto their customers i'll find out what i can and there's another one that used to get me was of course they will charge you for registering your vehicle on your behalf when you close the sale then there was of course the cost of actually uh, renewing counter service cost and there was a break and a reduction in the cost if you did it online yet they tried to charge me the in-person about amount versus the online amount which is exactly what they did they did it online so i bugged them about it even though it wasn't huge money it was just the principle of it right i found well, it irritating well that's the principle of me like, like you say yeah let me see what i can find yeah. out option is options tis well, you have a nice day and see if you can get clarification on that to all the dealerships all over this island. Yeah, I'll, I'll call around to a few of my buddies that work at different shops, see what, how, how they handle it. Mm -hmm. Okay, have a nice day. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't tell me it's an option, and then I have no choice but to take it. All right, uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're talking accessibility, and then we're talking about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. 
Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune in to Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the president of the municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on. Before we get to the topic of your choosing, what do you make of uh, Mr. Pollitt, Craig Pollitt's appointment to be the next executive director at the Atlantic Mayor's Congress? Because there might be a great opportunity for us to have with our relationship with Mr. Pollitt to maybe have a better understanding about what's shaking around Atlantic Canada and maybe bring some of his perspective home as he was the CEO for over 20 years. Yeah, well, we know. I mean, Craig was a wealth of knowledge with municipalities, Newfoundland and Labrador, and the time that he served with us. He's been a friend to municipalities all that time. Um, And, you know, we were, um, you know, when he left the organization, he had embedded a lot of that knowledge into our existing staff and into our membership and put a lot of practices in place that we're continuing to move forward on, um, you know, as we continue to work and grow our organization. So, we're happy to see a friendly face at that table, and we look forward to uh, working with him again and wish him all the best and all the success in the world. 100% because he was a real force around here. I really had a lot of respect or have a lot of respect for Craig and the work he did and the work he will do. Okay, let's get off to the topic of your choosing. What did you call about this morning, Amy? Well, we just wanted to talk about the effects of climate change again, you know, on our municipalities, the work that MNL has been doing to kind of arm our uh, membership with the tools and information that they need and, and just again talk about the effects of climate change on our communities. One of the biggest tricks there is that when everyone either felt like or were left to their own devices, money's hard to come by inside a municipality. So you need to bring in expertise, you need to bring in a a separate set of eyes to, you know, have an eyeball of what you're doing, what you should be doing. So what's the new approach that communities are taking? Because not everybody has the opportunity to hire an expert. Absolutely not. And that's what Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador has been doing. We've been working with the experts um, and compiling that information and making it available to our members so that instead of them having to go find the resources and the people and the experts to do the work for them at tremendous cost, we've done the work. We have a portion, a section on our our MNL website on climate resilience, which has access, our memberships would have access to webinars on climate change. We have a seven steps guide that uh, an assessment tool that is a short survey that will allow our members to complete to t- that will assess their vulnerability with regards to climate change. What are some um, you know factors in their area? Are they uh, you know do they have breakwaters? Um, are they you know centrally located with a lot of forest around them that would make them susceptible to forest fires? Um, are they in flood zones? Things like that that'll help uh, um, you know, assess the risk so they can take the steps in to help mitigate some of the damage that they would face given, uh, you know, a, a climate event. Extraordinary wildfire season, a variety of factors, but there's also, you, you mentioned forests, there's also got to be some attention to, because uh, I look right out my window here, I can see my Camel Terrace, and the amount of deforestation, not on a floodplain, but on a hill, and we know that natural bogs and trees, the forest itself, is a real way to help control the flow of water. What do you speak about on that front? Because that's something I think about a lot for some reason. Yeah, exactly. And again, that would come down to the assessment tool. And again, what we can't stress enough is 
our um, emergency plans in our municipalities and our um, our development plans in our communities. So we need to do work up front to assess our vulnerabilities in our own municipalities. Are we in a flood zone? What are some things that we can do to mitigate risks like that? Um, you know, are we, should we be planting trees in certain areas? Should we be removing trees in other areas to prevent forest fires and to prevent against flooding and destruction? So we have to constantly be working at our development plans and our emergency management plans and looking at our regional resources as well because when we talk about climate change, we know climate change doesn't recognize municipal boundaries. So in the event of a storm or, you know, some kind of a weather event or, or destruction that happens within our communities, we need to know what our neighboring communities, what resources they have available as well. Who can we talk to? Where can we pull from? What support can we get from our neighbors and vice versa? Um, and, you know, we learn by doing. So when we face an event, we may not be fully prepared to deal with, you know, we're not familiar with the circumstances circumstances or what uh, events are going to happen, what destruction is going to happen based on that event. But once we face it, we learn from that. And that's why I always refer to those documents as living documents. As soon as we face something, as soon as we see an event, um, you know, in another part of the province even, might not even be a neighboring community, but who has similar, um, you know, vulnerable areas as we would have in our specific area, we pull from that. We pull out that document. We update that information. We look at if it happened here, what would we have available to address this? How can we mitigate the same type of destruction that happened in this area, in our area? Um, so, again, just always making sure that those resources are, you know, not on the bookshelf, on the desktop, uh, and ready to be pulled out and uh, adjusted at any point. Uh, anything else on that front? Because I have another couple of questions. Yeah, no, you shoot. Well, we can talk about climate change at any time, and, you know, it's constantly evolving and changing. M&L continues to do the work to provide to our members. So, yeah, we can certainly talk about that another time. You go ahead with your other question. Yeah, Dave just said the exact same thing I was going to ask you about, is the stories we're hearing about well water. And there's some 40,000 wells that people use for their potable drinking water in the province. Some pretty big numbers regarding, you know, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% have arsenic levels over the the Safe Health Canada parameters. What do you guys know about that, and how can we encourage everyone who has a well to take advantage of the free test from the province and the free, the free testing because it's tasteless and orderless and comes with a myriad of health concerns? I would encourage any residents, when there are resources being offered to you, take advantage of those offerings. They're so important. Um, M&L, from our perspective, we haven't been getting a lot of reports on arsenic in wells because a lot of our municipalities are on water systems. They don't rely on wells, so to speak. Um, you know, some do access well water for some of their water supply, but it hasn't been an issue that we've been hearing at the office. There hasn't been a lot coming to us. Drinking water infrastructure is always a concern in our communities. Um, the, the, we've spoken before about the cost of maintaining those systems. Um, you know, the 
the, the amount of work, the amount of knowledge that's necessary to operate um, and maintain those systems. So again, you know, when, when resources are offered to you, please take advantage of those. Um, if there are municipalities who are facing this, we want them to reach out to our office and let us know. But again, it, like I said, it hasn't been something that we've been hearing at our office that our members are having um, issues with. But again, we know it is an issue and we want, uh, you know, we want every, all members in all communities, regardless if they're a member of MNL or not, to please be safe and take, um, you know, take advantage of what's offered to you and make sure that you are being safe. Because thinking it's safe is not the same as it actually being safe. Uh, last one, and maybe because I hear so many stories reg- regarding food insecurity that I think about this an awful lot, but we know the Department of Municipal Affairs is working on a guidance document regarding helping municipalities understand what they can and cannot do, what they should or should not be considering regarding bylaws inside their town or their city, because a lot of what municipalities have done is they've adopted... A, a significant portion of a 1947 guiding document from the UK, the 1947 Agricultural Act. We know it's one thing for me to live in the East End of St. John's. I have different food security issues than maybe other more smaller, rural, remote parts of the province. Does MNL play a role in this? Because I think if we get this right, we can cure some of the other problems that we're dealing with if people have close access, proximity to healthier, affordable options. Yeah, so, I mean, MNL obviously is a membership-driven organization. When our members bring um, topics to us that they want us to research, that's certainly what we work on. We have excellent partnerships, um, and that's where a lot of our information comes from and a lot of the information that we can provide to our membership. So Josh Smee with Food First, an excellent partner with MNL. We're continuing to work with Josh on various initiatives um, through Food First NL. Um, Obviously, each municipality and their ability to provide land or um, enforce, um, you know, regulations when it comes to farmland or, um, you know, if we're doing gardening, things like that, the abilities are different there as well to be able to work with the, the residents and enforce bylaws and things. So, it, you know, it's, it's not cookie cutter. We say that a lot. I know I say it a lot, but it's something that we know is essential. Um, to the um, to the sustainability, not just food sustainability and security, but also the sustainability of our municipalities to be able to have our residents provide for themselves. A lot of municipalities are taking on community gardens. I know in the municipality that I'm in, Grand Falls, Windsor, we have um, a community garden that is thriving and, you know, pardon the pun, growing, expanding um, the number of beds that we've offered since they've they've started. Um, this year alone, we have added several beds that are solely for the uh, Exploits Community Food Bank um, and our um, community kitchen. So those beds are set aside. Any crops that are grown in those beds go directly to those organizations. And they also this week have an initiative where anybody who has additional crops that you know they want to uh, pass on to the community food bank, 
then they can harvest and pass those on, and we'll make sure that they get to the community food bank and community kitchen. So um, it's something that we are always working on. Um, again, our, our members are asking, you know, how do they be, how do they do these types of things with food security, homesteading, things like that. Um, we'll continue to work on it, and we always encourage our, our membership to bring uh, information to us when they want us to work on certain things for them. Appreciate the time this morning, Amy. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Patty. My pleasure, Amy. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Amy Cody is the president at uh, Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Brian, stay right there. You're next to come up about to talk about the accessibility issue. And then Ken, you're next. Raymond, you're in the queue. There, someone wanted me to pose this question. It was one day last week that the St. John's Regional Fire Department put a seven-day fire ban in place. The question being posed by one of our listeners is... Is that finite? Like, I mean, it doesn't matter what the forecast is because it's pretty wet around here and it looks like it's going to be wet for the next bunch of days. It's been really wet since Saturday. So the fire ban is a continue even though the weather has changed. That's a fair question. I don't know the answer. How about you? Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Doreen, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Yeah, uh, we just came up Peacekeepers Road and it's CBS about uh, Fox Trap Access want to report a moose sighting. We just had to swerve from it. Well, I'm glad that you missed it. So right there at the Fox Trap Access Road, Peacekeepers Way. Yes. Good warning for the other motoring public out there, Doreen. Thanks for letting us know and I'm glad you're able to give us a shout and tell us. Thank you and have a nice morning. The very same to you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, when we give the old moose specifics, it's pretty much worth saying they're out there they're everywhere so watch your bobber let's go to line number three brian you're on the air good day sir top of the morning to you the top of the morning to you i'm uh calling uh i have a friend uh that's disabled 100 percent disabled and his landlord just denies him access with his wheelchair and this has been going on for probably uh, seven years and he has other medical issues and health issues. He just had three major surgeries in less than two months. And uh, is there anything we can do to help this gentleman? It's a good question. I don't know what kind of enforceable approach people can take. What I'm going to do is suggest that you go directly to the coalitions of persons with disabilities because they will have lived this. They talk about it. They'll be able to point you in the right direction. So that's what I would suggest. How does that work for you? Well, that works great for me, Lance. Listen, this poor man is fired inside seven days a week. Yeah, and I mean, this is just this kind of stuff where it shouldn't be left to the whims of whether or not a landlord would like to accommodate whatever accessibility or mobility issue that uh, a, a tenant might man, have. Pardon? The poor man moved in there as a disabled unit. Yeah. Okay. So... I, I, I wish I could tell you something very specific, but for the folks who work on these issues day after day, I think it's probably wise to give them a shout, see if they can help. So I'll give you a number. Okay, I'm ready. So this is the Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, and their number is 722. 722-70-11. Okay, then thank you very, very much. You have a wonderful day, and I love your podcast. I appreciate your time. Let us know if you have any luck, though, Brian, will you? Uh, yes, I will, because I'm going to make some phone calls right now. Okay, good man. Let us know. And I will get back to you with the information I find out. Thank you, Brian. Stay in touch.
Stay in touch. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I'd like to know what happens there. Let's go to line number four. Ken, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Good. Uh, uh, look, I, I was just listening to the gentleman uh, who called in a little while ago talking about his issue with uh, a tire and rim warranty when he was purchasing a vehicle. And uh, yeah. I just thought I'd relate my own experience uh, just back a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we, we were in the market for a, a new vehicle and uh, went to a dealership here in uh, St. John's, kind of decided on a, a make and model. Went to the dealership here, um, expecting, among other things, that I'd have to pay the uh, like the standard add-ons, air conditioning tax, admin fee, licensing. Um, but there was a host of other uh, add-ons, or what I assumed would have been options. The tire and rim warranty was one, $699. Uh, wheel locks, I guess these are those nuts you put on your uh, your, uh, your your lug nuts so somebody can't steal them, $250. Collision and glass deductible waiver, $150. Uh, floor protection, I guess that was the mats, $299. And mud flaps, $260. So um, I, I said to the dealer, or the, the salesman, I said, I'll, I'm not really interested in any of these. And he basically said, I'm sorry, but they're all, uh, they're all required. Uh, they're, they're not options. They're obligatory. Um, so I was a little ticked off, obviously, um, so we decided to shop around a little bit, other dealerships uh, selling the same make and model. So I, uh, I landed on a dealership in Clarenville, and for the exact, exact same vehicle, um, uh, all of these extras or these options, uh, they said, no problem. If you, if you don't want them, we'll, uh, we, we, won't, we won't charge you for them. So the exact same vehicle cost me over $1,500 less. Um, so it was a little bit shocking, but um, to think that all of these, what I've always assumed to be options, were actually obligatory was a bit of a shock and a surprise to me. Fair enough. Look, I, I guess it boils back to very sensible advice people give is there's benefits in shopping around. You know, if Absolutely. you just take the first offer out of it, whether it be expedience or convenience or ease, you might be leaving money on the table. So shopping around, especially when we talk about what is likely the second most expensive purchase any of us will make beyond a home is a vehicle. It's absolutely worth trying to save every buck you can. Yeah. And, you know, I, 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 you wonder kind of what's behind this. Um, I know, like, all dealers are, are suffering from low inventories, supply issues, and I guess they're all looking for creative ways to increase their margins. Um, the days of, uh, of actually being able to barter or bargain on the actual sticker price on, on a vehicle, I mean, there was a time you, you, you could get uh, a dealer to, to throw in some extras or give you a little bit of a break on the price. Those days are gone. The sticker price is a sticker price today. So along with that, and then kind of making all of these um, all of these charges uh, that we always assume to be uh, um, options, uh, making them obligatory, it's, it's it's a tough pill to swallow, no doubt about it. Uh, good point on the sticker price. Look, the MSRP used to be the starting point. <laughs> no more. Not I, anymore. If you can wiggle out a set of snow tires, you've done all right. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, I just wanted to pass on my experience. Um, I've actually even written to CBC Marketplace uh, and suggest that they have a look at this as well. But uh, there's something not right here. I know uh, the, the dealers are all building these big fancy dealerships, especially here in St. John's these days. I, I guess they got to pay for them somehow. Yeah, and, you know, I sold uh, trucks up in Alberta for a little while before we moved back. And, you know, it's something that people need to know. 
So there's a fairly, it depends on the vehicle. Uh, there's a pretty long way between the MSRP and the break-even number. And then there's something uh, known as the holdback. Yeah. The dealer will get X amount of money per vehicle sold. That is actually what they call a dealer holdback. So at the end of the year, if they sold round number 500, X number of dollars per those vehicles goes right back into the profit stream on top of whatever profit they made on the sticker price itself. And then it's the warranty, and then it's the undercoating and the rust proofing, and then it's maintenance, and then it's all the parts, and then it's all the add-ons that they, you can see on your bill. So there's a reason why the uh, auto dealers, and I don't begrudge them. I mean, if you're making money, good for you. But there's a reason why they make as much money as they do. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, so just thought I'd pass on my two cents worth. It'd be interesting to see if other people have had similar experiences. And they're welcome to call. I appreciate the time. All right. Thanks, Patty. Thanks, Ken. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, look, shopping around. I mean, whether it be for insurance on your vehicle or the vehicle itself or if you're going to get a mini split or whatever. Because sometimes look, it's a busy world, right? And people think, well, it's got to be a, not a whole lot of difference in these things. They're all in and around the same price. Maybe not. All right, let's take a break for the news, guys. So when we come back, Raymond, you're next to talk about the price at the pump. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Wayne, you're on the air. Good day, sir. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? Pretty good. Uh, just to let your listeners know, I'm a, I'm a Canadian Forces uh, Naval veteran. And uh, in my 30 years in the Navy, when we used to come back from long tours overseas, we would, uh, all the newbies would switch the radio to VOCM as we're coming across the uh, Virgin Rock out there on the 200-mile limit, and we'd all listen to VOCM. Terrific. <laughs> Welcome to the show so this the morning. Today, the kids today with their computers, I don't know what they're listening to, but anyway, uh, the reason for the call today was I was down home this summer, and... Uh, Prior to that, every five years, I'd go down home to see the family and that, and I was always looking for this one naval veteran. I couldn't find him. But this summer when I was down there, I didn't find him, but when I got back on the Air Ginger Ferry to come back to Nova Scotia, I uh, ran into him in Annie Kanish. He walked up to me, and he says, how you doing, Wayne? I said, not bad. I said, how do I know you? <laughs> it was him, the, 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 the naval veteran I was looking for. Wow. So if I'm allowed to say his name. Sure. His name is Dennis Dunn. He lives out in the ghouls, as far as I know. If anybody's listening, then tell him to call Mr. Finn. I, I'm trying to get him to call me back, because what happened was on the, when we were on the road, he was a passenger in a vehicle, and he sent me a phone call, and the uh, phone call came up as, so I'd have his number. His phone call came up as a private number, private caller, so I, I didn't get it. But if he's listening to the show or if any of his friends are listening, uh I'd like for Dennis to give me a call, please. So what's Dennis's last name? Dunn. Dennis Dunn. Dennis yep. Dunn. Find outstanding, find outstanding naval, naval veteran. <laughs> Happy to try. And what's your last name? Sorry, Wayne? My name is Wayne Finn. Wayne Finn. All right, Dennis yeah. Dunn, or friends of Dennis Dunn, retired Navy veteran, please do let Dennis know that Wayne Finn is looking for a call. So do you want to give us your number or just leave it with Dave? What would you like to do? I'd like to leave it with Dave, please. Okay, let's do exactly that. So David has your number. If anyone wants to help us connect Wayne and Dennis Dunn, let's do that. Hopefully this works out. Let me know if it does. I will, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Cheers. Take bye. Take care. Bye-bye, Wayne. Here we go. Hopefully we can make that reconnection happen. Let's go to line number three. Uh, Austin, you're on the air. 
Morning, Patty. Morning to you. I can't seem to find anybody else to talk baseball on you. <laughs> Happy to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you get to see the Orioles and, and uh, Blue Jays? I did. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, Austin, when the game was about to begin, I had mentioned to my wife that we had a call from a listener who's a big Orioles fan, talk about Boog Powell and stuff like that. So she got a kick out of that. And then we watched the Orioles absolutely manhandle the Blue Jays. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, I, I called Dave there. I said, I, I don't, I wouldn't, there's not many people interested in baseball in Newfoundland. There's, there's many more things that are important. But I, I, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to get in touch with you because it's only my son that I, I talked to about it because he's, he's a fan as well, right? I have a bunch of buddies. I made him, I made him do it. Yeah, like you would. Uh, <laughs> I got a lot of buddies who are baseball fans, thankfully. I tell you what, that Orioles team, they're for real. They have got some thick arms that are young guys who are bringing the heat. They've got tons of bats, which are also really young guys. They have a really, really good team. And I think they now have – they're tied with Atlanta with the best uh, record in baseball. That's what they are. Yeah, yeah. 70 wins apiece, I think. Yeah, and uh, on the weekend, they had all the old-timers back in Baltimore for a get-together, right? Yeah. Eddie Murray and the boys. And uh, – Quite proud to watch it, boy. Like you would. I mean, it's a pretty proud franchise. It's been a while since they had this type of roster on the field, but between yeah. Rutschman and Henderson and Mountcastle and oh, Fraser a, and uh, Santander. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're minor leagues. They're loaded too, right? Apparently so, yeah. Yeah, so they got this young guy in, in double A that they just can't wait to bring up. That he's hitting 490 or something. Wow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, they got lots of great arms. And I tell you what, that Felix Bautista, <laughs> he's impossible to hit. Yeah, they call him the mountain. The mountain. Yeah. He's got an ERA under one. Yeah. But I'm, I, I get scared when they bring in, I got the other fellow called The Rock, uh, Canole. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Uh, he gives up... Uh, it's when he comes in, so I'm sort of scared of him. Yeah, Cano, they hit him hard. That's one thing about but him. They, He's they around the plate. But a Japanese guy that uh, he comes in in the 70s. They picked him up for nothing from Oakland, and, and uh, he seems to be doing well. That's uh, Fujinami, is it? You got a boy, you're following it well. Yeah. I don't know if uh, for Jays fans out there, of course, the real story over the past weekend was the input of this David Schneider kid who got called up from AAA Buffalo. Yes, yeah, I've been watching their games when the Orioles are not on, and I tell you, they put it to Boston. Yeah, the Red Sox are kind of weak, but, you know, it, it was nice but to I get mean, a series had, sweep. Had the Blue Jays been playing well in their own division, they, they would be up there past Baltimore. They'd be right there with them, even if they played 500 in the division, because what are they, seven back here this morning? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that's a long road, but they've only got 10 wins out of about 30 games in the American League East. They hadn't that's beat right. the Red Sox all year until they swept them on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. It's so nice to talk to somebody who knows the game so well. It's, uh, you know. <laughs> I don't know how much I know about it, but I do appreciate it and enjoy watching it. Yeah. Well, thanks for taking my call, and uh, good luck to the Blue Jays and the Orioles. The very same to you. Thanks for this, Austin. Okay, my friend. Take care. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You too. Okay. Yeah, Baltimore are thick.
I mean, because the Braves are outstanding. And for Baltimore to have the same number of wins inside the American League East, toughest division of baseball, without question. The Jays would only be behind one other team in the entirety of the American League with their record. But here they are, seven back. Uh, will I take a break here on time, Dave? All right, a little bit of baseball advice, good for what ails you. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take our final break of the morning. And when we come back, you know, there's been a big uptake uh, with the provincial program to install some alternative form of heating beyond oil and stove oils. $157 million was set aside. I think people are finding out that there's a bit of a shortage in contractors and consequently electricians required for pre-inspection, installation, fire certification because for some it doesn't matter what your motivation is for some it might be about carbon footprint but for others it's about cost they're pretty cost efficient they i mean like i've told you when we had the real hot muggy days in july that dry setting that cooling feature that my mini split offered in particular big fan all right let's take our final break of the morning when we come back heat pumps mini splits whatever you want to talk about talk away Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number five. Daryl, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. How are you doing today? Doing okay. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on your uh, show. Uh, Patty, well, I want to talk to you today about uh, <clears throat> heat pumps and subsidies that are out there, as you state, $157 million. But uh, right now, Newfoundland Labrador, I think there's about 40,000 households are still on oil, and the government's trying to move them off the oil. And, and more cleaner energy but not only they should be doing for people with oil even with people just say with electric heat because the cost of that is going up as well as you know we had an increase of 6.8 percent there recently i think was first july wherever the case may be so i think it should be subsidies for people on oil and people just say just electric heat or whatever the case may be but i'll add more to this where the federal government is pushing people go more cleaner energy and and so forth i think they should be footing the cost because they can do it through they're charging us carbon tax they're charging a clean energy tax to the business so why can't they the money to get from that funnel and cover the cost for everybody like for the heat pumps if if they're worried about the environment and get this moving faster because we're moving at a slow pace but i think they should be footing the whole bill for it that's my personal thought on that one so, I mean, they're giving people the option, right? So that that's one thing. But you're suggesting that they subsidize every form of energy. Because people are contacting me saying, well, no, I primarily rely on wood. And I've even put these very specifics to the minister. They say that they're looking at different pots of money that could be of benefit to however people heat their home. But you're suggesting every form of energy should see a tax credit or a, some sort yeah. of credit or subsidy. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like if it's just people would or wh- whatever the case may be. But word are charging this carbon tax now and clean energy tax to business. Uh, I think the money, what they should be doing, if, if, if they're worried about the environment, like they say, I think they should be footing the whole bill because a lot of people, even though you got these incentives, a lot of people still probably can't afford to put a heat pump in, even with the incentives or, or whatever the case may be. I think they should be covering the whole cost if they want to start to turn things around. Like like for you, me, or anyone, it depends on the type of energy they got coming into their house. I think they should foot the whole bill to cost for it because we're, we're paying dearly in tax. And now you got this carbon tax and, and clean energy tax going to the business. 
So what's, ha what's happening with the money with all this? So I want to just translate it back to the people because they're not going to get rid of the tax and cover the costs for everybody to put a heat pump in and uh, don't matter what type of energy they got. And it'll be big savings. I'm hearing the heat pumps are up to, you get up to what, 40 or 50% saving. So that, that's a big saving, and everything's going up and up. Well, there's a lot of variables as to what right. type of cost recovery is involved with heat yeah. pumps, centralized, or mini splits, or whatever the case may be. The best right. part about this newest program <clears throat> is that for folks who rightfully said, look, it's fine for me to get a rebate after the fact, but I don't have the money up front. But in this one, the installers, they can build Take Charge directly. So that's a right. real benefit to folks who are considering this particular move. I don't know how many people are going to do it. I would think it'll be an attractive of option people will consider on the brake business you know one argument or one point that people make is and i think it's fair and it's worth more discussion is whether or not inside one of these so-called well absolutely the necessities of life to heat our home and to buy food whether or not it's appropriate for hst to be applied that's i think an absolutely fair conversation because there's never going to be the day where every single dollar in the bill is going to be footed by either the province or the federal government. But the conversation about HST on home heating fuels is absolutely fair. And HST on home heating, period, regardless of how you heat your home. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that one. And there's got to be a big conversation on that. And, and I totally agree with you, Patty, with, uh, with that. But like I said, they want to get everybody changed over. I think the incentives okay is a step in the right direction but i think they should cover the whole cost because once it's done it's done like a one-time uh deal and like you said they got ways now that the contractors don't need to build whatever but i'm still hearing people still can afford it totally as such but if you want to make the move uh cover the cost for everybody one-time uh, deal because i know here in the province i think there's forty thousand households are still on oil uh you know i stand to be corrected on that one but but even like the hydro bills, our hydro bills are going up and up and up, uh, as you know as well. So let's do it for everybody and cover, make a one-time deal covered costs for all of it. And uh, and now they got their savings is good for an environment as as win-win for everybody and cost saving as well. So. That's my input on that one. Yeah, the big implication, on if we're talking about emissions and footprints and the like, is, you know, major sectors of the economy, transportation, agriculture, the fossil fuel industry, you know, people's footprint inside their own home is not massive when we talk about the collectives, but I, I think I understand your point, and I appreciate the time. Anything else you want to say, uh, Daryl? Uh, no, that's about it. Like I said, uh, people's footprint is not massive, but yet the government is uh, taxing us on all these different taxes, as I just stated. So if that's the case, take the money from those taxes and put it back to the people and, and cover the costs, because every little footprint, it all adds up. And, you know, way the way the things are with the environment and so forth. So uh, that's my perspective on it. Maybe uh, you could probably get the federal minister that deals with all this on provincial level, and, and like says, get a big conversation going on this and talk about it more in depth. Yeah, well, I, I think we also have to pay very strict attention to how and where and why governments spend money from all levels these days, considering the whopping big sovereign debt load, a provincial debt, net debt we, that we carry, because some paying for it and we're servicing it every year to the tune of in and around a billion dollars right here in this province i uh, appreciate yeah, the time daryl 
Yeah, you are right, Patty. I, I don't know how we're doing it, but we got to get creative and innovative, no doubt about it. And again, thanks for your time, Patty, and uh, all the best to you and your staff and the listening audience. You too, Daryl. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye bye. All right. Final word this morning goes to line number one. Pat, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, how are you today, Patty? That's kind. How about you? I'm calling about something. Oh, pretty good. Uh, something similar to what that guy was just talking about. Okay. Uh, you take your. Uh, vehicle taxes or vehicle insurance is compulsory. You can't you can't get away with that, or you can get away with it, but you're going to be in a big problem if you have an accident or if you get stopped with no insurance, right? And uh, we should be allowed to claim this on our. This should be dropped altogether, as far as I'm concerned. But we should have uh, should be able to claim it on our income tax, right? And same thing with your property insurance, right? I mean, I'm living here now 30, 32 years, and I never had a claim, you know in my life, right, on, pro- on property insurance, right? And, I mean, you don't have, that's not that's not volu- that's not uh, compulsory to have, but you're stupid if you don't have it, I can tell you that. Well, you're certainly taking a mighty chance. So you're suggesting that there should be a tax credit associated with carrying mandatory, or what should be mandatory, and it is technically mandatory, automobile insurance? Yes, and the sa- same, claim, claim it on your income tax, when you collect your taxes in the spring of the year, right? Yeah. Same way with your, well, with your property tax, right? You know? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, automobile insurance or even your home insurance or your quad insurance has very little, other than regulatory issues, has very little to do with government operations and government uh, revenue. Uh, but I suppose, I mean, the insurance companies pay tax. So I, I guess there's that relationship. Well, you pay tax. You pay 13% on your on your. I got I got to renew mine on the 25th, right? And you got to I, I pay. Both at the same time, right? The the property tax and the insurance for the vehicle, right? So there's taxes on that, right? Fifteen percent. That there are, yeah. There's, I mean, there's very little out there that comes without a tax implication. <laughs> that that much we know for sure. People are. Pushing back, and I think it's a fair conversation to be had about how we pay. Now, of course, taxes, nobody really loves paying taxes, but, of course, virtually everything we touch is funded or fueled by somebody's tax dollar, regardless of what we're talking about. So, you know, municipally here we complain about taxes, but if you look at the percentage of median income tax uh, here in this province, municipally speaking, versus other parts of Atlantic Canada, we really aren't taxed to death. Now, it's one thing to say that, but versus provincial and federal taxation, it seems to be pretty high. Over half my check goes to somebody else in tax. That feels like a lot with the effort that I have to put in to make the money. Uh, That's right. Appreciate the call, Pat. You take good care of yourself. Uh, I should try to get a, a federal uh, guy there from the provincial because the pro, don't come under provincial government I don't think but you have because the taxes well there's two levels of tax the province charges tax as well yeah 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 get somebody on sometime sure. you get a chance no problem okay thank you you're welcome sir all the best all right, have a good day you too bye bye uh, yeah, I mean, the argument about taxes, I mean, it's one of the, the real constants, you know. We can all expect a couple of different things that are never going away in our lives and our, uh, I guess, time on the planet. Paying taxes is absolutely one of those. All right, final check of the morning here on the Twitter box. We're well, VOCM Open Line follows there. Plenty of interest and requests coming from folks based on the call we had with uh, Fraser Pickett earlier today about the disability tax credit, the retirement implications turning the age of 49, the disability benefits calculator, which I'm happy to share with folks, and I've shared it many, many times since we had Fraser on. I'm pretty sure 
there are going to be people who heard that call and that's really what I appreciate the most when people are illuminating certain issues bringing these issues to the forefront in an informed manner to tell, tell people what's out there and what you can take advantage of or if you're technically eligible so I bet you there's a dozen callers or a dozen listeners at least that now have the link they have the calculator in hand and we'll be figuring out whether or not they can avail of it as they rightfully should alright uh, big thanks to everyone who supports the program and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line on behalf of the producer David Williams I'm your host Patty Daly have yourself a safe fun happy day we'll talk in the morning bye bye